0: You will get 15% off, not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 519 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Sarah Wilkinson. Now, Sarah was married to Chad Wilkinson, an incredibly successful Navy SEAL and member of SEAL Team 6. And in 2018, Chad took his own life. So we discuss a host of topics from how they met in high school, their parallel careers, how Chad transitioned out of the military for a short time, trying to do the best thing for his family, finding himself back in and ultimately in SEAL Team 6. And then through her eyes, some of the changes that she witnessed, obviously some she noticed then, some she noticed after the event. But then most importantly, what she's doing now. Sarah really dove into the subject of TBIs, of PTSD, of all these other compounding elements that are causing our veterans and civilians to take their own lives. We also talk about Chad 1,000 times a few years ago Dave Castro posted that workout, a hero wad called Chad of a Thousand Box Steps wearing a backpack or a vest. Um and we did it in my gym. And so GoRuck, another community that's very, very dear to my heart, have joined forces with Sarah this year to get behind the event. And it's gonna be an international event as well. So we talk about not only the event, how you can participate, how you can scale, how you can train for it, and so many other areas. So I cannot urge you enough to listen to this conversation from a widow's perspective, from an operator's perspective, and what people are doing in Chad's memory to push the needle on preventing this happening in the future. So before we get to this very powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it more visible to others, and this is a free library of over 500 episodes now, so all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Sarah Wilkinson. Enjoy. So, Sarah, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. I did an interview with the guys at rock a while ago, and we had, they had discussed, you know, talking to you, building a relationship with you. And I'd said even then in that interview that, that I'd love to sit down with you one day. I heard you on Jocko's podcast as well. Um yeah, obviously, The Glorious Professionals was the first one he did with Jason and Emily. So I am honored that you trust me to, to come on this podcast. So I just want to start by saying thank you and welcome.
1: Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate your time as well.
0: So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? And I know it's not, not where you live.
1: <laughs> I am in sunny San Diego, California, and I'm very happy about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so where, where are you normally? Where's your home base?
1: Uh, Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach, Virginia. And I've lived there for 20 years, the better part of it. And I love it, but I needed a break. So I came to San Diego. Yeah. Beautiful.
0: A little bit more sun in San Diego.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely my my vibe here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I love to start chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: Yeah, I was born in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina on a military base. My dad was a Marine. My mom, for the most part, was a stay-at-home mom. She worked a little when we were younger um, in some real estate, but most of our lives, she was home with us. And I have a sister, Angie. She's six and a half years older than me. So pretty big age separation. However, we were always really, really close. And I lived in North Carolina the first few years of my life and then pretty much set to move every two to three years because of my dad's career. So I was, I'm a military kid, born and bred.
0: Now, I know you end up intersecting with Chad very early, so we'll get to his timeline in a minute. But um, one thing I like to ask, whether people just had gypsy parents or whether it was a, a military upbringing, um, what were the pros when you look back, the pros and the cons of that kind of childhood?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... The pros are I, I I can see now as an adult I kind of view myself as a chameleon. So if I were to embody an animal I guess, you know, I can I can blend in or I can stand out. It depends on what what the room needs, what the environment needs. I think you learn that as a military kid, you move all the time. You have to adapt and make new friends. It makes you pretty resilient. Um it makes you more understanding. I don't want to say more, but pretty understanding of other people because you're exposed to different people, different cultures, different races, different, all kinds of different backgrounds. I liked being a military kid. Um, But then again, I didn't know anything else, but I I liked it. The flip side, the, the somewhat of the downfall is all those things that work in your favor can also work against you in the sense that because we're very independent because we're okay sometimes just being the lone wolf and we're very resilient we also don't ask for help so that's that's definitely worked against me at times i just kind of will handle stuff on my own and i won't reach out to friends and i if i'm going through a hard time i isolate myself because that's just more comfortable for me than surrounding myself with a bunch of people so it's a give and take
0: now you talked about you know all all colors and creeds and, and you know backgrounds um i had a unique perspective where i grew up in a farmhouse and my dad was a vet and he was a horse, uh-huh. horse vet primarily. So we had everyone from, and I don't mean in this any vertical scale at all, but everyone from gypsies to royalty and everything in between. Um, and he okay. would do pro bono work all the way through to, you know, serving these very uh, la da families. And, you know, you saw that there were two types of people there were nice people and there were assholes. And they could be of all colors and creeds. Did you yeah. get that kind of perspective with all the traveling and all the different communities that you found yourself embedded in?
1: Uh, I guess to some degree, you know, we, we were always closely connected as a kid. My dad, we were always kind of closely connected to the base, living on base or living near the base. And it's different from branch to branch. I know for for my dad was a Marine and in the Marine Corps, there seems to be a huge separation between whether you're an officer or you're enlisted. It's, it's a status thing and it seems to really matter. It didn't matter to us. Didn't really matter to my dad. It didn't matter to me who my friends' dads were, but um, that came into play. I know my mom experienced it as a spouse at different functions. Um, You know, there's good and bad people all over the world, no matter what they do. So,
0: Absolutely. I think traveling is a great way of learning that too. Um, What about athletics? What were you playing in high school age?
1: Uh, I was a swimmer from the time I was a young kid. Uh, We were living in Florida, so that's prime sport down there. I took up swimming. Um, That was, I did a little bit of everything. I mean, I tried softball. I did horseback riding. I was a cheerleader, which is shocking to most people (laughs) who know me. Um, I actually cheered through high school and a short stint in college, which usually blows people's mind. But um, swimming was really my thing. However, I got burned out uh, about my senior year, and that's a regret. I wish I would have stuck with it and potentially gone to school, small school, and swam, but I swim now, so it works.
0: There we go. And whereabouts in Florida were you?
1: Uh, just south of Tampa. Okay. So my dad was stationed at McDill, CENTCOM. Um, that's where he retired, actually, from. that was his, We were there when I was a kid and then ended up back there years later. He retired there.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, I'm in Ocala, so I'm not far from there at all.
1: Oh, there you go. You're close to Gainesville. Yep. That's my alma mater. Yep, that's yeah, that's
0: mine too. you Oh, nice. yeah, yeah, despite the wrinkles, I did go to school, and that was only a few years ago too. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, then, what about career aspirations? Again, kind of high school level. What were you dreaming of becoming?
1: I think when I was in high school, I wanted to be in the like nonprofit world. I wanted to, I wanted to be. Um, I was leaning towards just community-based integration of programs, and um, I worked at a YMCA, so I wanted to coach, and there was a swimming program at the YMCA. They had like eight swimmers, and I was young, and they had a coach, so I went and volunteered and worked for free, and by the middle of the summer, the coach decided to leave, and I took over the program, and I expanded it. Uh, quite a bit. And I think that was my first exposure to, you know, working, working for something like the YMCA in a community-based setting. And that's what led me to, to go to school and get my degree. And um, when I was younger, I think I, that was my goal is I wanted to be like a a director of a, of a YMCA or some community-based program. Yeah.
0: Now, I talk a lot about the power of mentorship on here, just you know, purely from seeing it. And people bitch about you know certain generations and everything. But to me, when you invest in your community, you can raise everyone up. Especially you know, maybe young men and women that are in um, areas that maybe have barriers to entry, whether it's financial or you know the the time that parents have to to lend to the kids. Did you have experiences when you were in the YMCA of, of mentorship that really turned some people around?
1: Uh yeah from the swimming perspective I worked in kind of every little branch within the Y. I worked at the front desk, I worked within their summer camps, I worked with the swimmers and I coached swimmers ages 5, you know, up to 17, 18 years old. I think to be able to be someone of influence and good direction for young kids, I I took a lot out of that and I I I didn't take it lightly. I valued that. I had a swim coach that really impacted me and maybe somewhere in the back of my mind that's that's what I was hoping to do. Um I think I'm born to be a coach, which obviously led me down my career path later. I I, I enjoy the challenge of trying to get people to find the best within themselves that makes
0: sense no it does absolutely and i think that's the the cross space is another area you know maybe not just young people but just everyone you know making them realize what they're capable of rather than their their predetermined vision of themselves yeah so um let me just go back again then and do the same thing with chad so we can bring you together in in the the high school um uh, timeline so tell me about his family you know again how many siblings his parents did
1: Yeah, he um, he's the oldest of four kids. He was born in San Diego, California, which was a running joke because he would always say he's from the West Coast, but he really didn't live here that much. (laughs) You're not. He claimed because he was born here, he's a West Coaster, but um, he's the oldest of four. His mom and dad were also high school sweethearts, so they met very young, um, as did his grandma and grandpa. Uh, His dad was a SEAL as well, and then switched over within the military to do, um, he did aviation stuff within the Navy. His uncle was also a SEAL. So his mom and dad met very young, kind of always knew they wanted to be together. Um, They started having children young. Chad was the oldest. He has two brothers and then a sister. So there's 10 years between him and his youngest sibling, his sister, His dad um, spent a lot of time not just in the military, but also going to school. So he earned his Ph.D. So they, too, moved around a lot when he was a kid and lived in Yuma, Arizona and Bloomington, Indiana and Virginia, Pennsylvania. So similar in the sense that we understood what it was like to move all the time. He was really athletic, him and his brothers always, you know, like brothers are, they're big soccer players. So always playing soccer, always wrestling, always playing outside.
0: Now with the military family, was he, again, from what he told you at that age, was he dreaming of the military from, you know, quite a young age?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I really, well, I know he, he felt like he wanted to be a SEAL probably from the time he was like a teen, like 12, 13 years old. I think that that you know he has every movie you can imagine it goes back to to dating with navy seals and um he would watch them on repeat with posters up in his room and i think he saw that not only as something admirable and honorable to do but again just to serve his country and we're military kids and it's kind of it's just in our blood so
0: now as you you know probably aware certainly now um I had a real eye-opening experience when I started listening to so many people's stories and the amount of childhood trauma in the uniform professions was, was startling. And then when you really kind of unpack, you know, a lot of the suicide ideation or even, you know, completion of suicide, that seems to be a factor in many, many, you know, of these men and women. Was there anything he touched on that, you know, and there's such a diverse spectrum from, you know, not feeling loved by a parent all the way through to obviously, you know, horrific abuse. Was there anything that you look back now that maybe, you know, would be contributing to what happened later?
1: You know, that's just it. I mean, his family is wonderful. Um, I wouldn't say they're huge showers of affection um, compared to my mom and dad. My mom and dad, I love them, but they're almost like smothering, but it's just what I know. And, And I don't take that away from him. I mean, Truthfully, if people, if we spent time around a dinner table and shared all these stories of our childhood with you, we both had a pretty, pretty good childhood aside from the fact that our dads were military. And at times that meant that they were gone, you know, for large periods of time, whether it's deployed or training trips or, or even his dad just excelling and getting multiple degrees and stuff, um, I can't sit here and say that he nor I have some trauma packed away. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, it's interesting. And some people don't, but it it was definitely an eye opener how many did. And I think a lot of us don't realize, you know, that they, you know, no one knows the, the battle that someone's fighting, as they say. And it's true. I mean, you know, I've had friends on here, friends who I found out were sexually abused, were, you know, beaten as kids, were around, you know, addiction and alcohol, or they were the middle child. And, you know, one parent got their first boy and then they wanted a girl and the second boy came and they're like, I want a girl. And the third girl came and they were happy, you know, yeah, so that, that trauma that can, can be. in number.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. Imprint people. I mean, it, and really, um, while there are many people who ante up to serve, you know, in uniform for our country because of, you know, pride for the flag or whatever it drives it, there's equally, as you're saying, probably many people that this provides an out in some ways it provides an out of a life that might be not that great or might be putting them on a trajectory that's pretty terrible it allows for them to go to school to get a paycheck to receive health care to to get out of that bad situation or that bad town that they live in so i can only imagine that that is a a strong theme that runs through some of our military yes
0: yeah absolutely i think that the, the uh the drive to be the protector is another one. And then, you know, the uh, the feeling of self-worth. You know, if you become a firefighter or a Navy SEAL, you know, y- y- you feel like you're you're not that that vulnerable child anymore. But if you don't deal with it, you're still that vulnerable child. And that's the problem, you know, if we don't address yeah. the trauma as we come into the uniform. It's a beautiful profession to be in. But that front door, I think we need to do a better job at processing, you know, what our men and women have been through up to that point. So that they can turn that you know trauma into resilience,
1: yeah, agreed,
0: so walk me through then, um how you guys met, because obviously you know, we talked about your backgrounds, you're very similar, you're both moving around, you both come from military families,
1: yeah, um I always smile because I just remember this day so clearly <laughs> um but we were, we were military kids. We were stationed at a DOD high school. So, which means they're, they're high schools that are on military bases for military kids. And there's, I, I think there might be two left in existence. Ours Quantico high school doesn't exist anymore, but uh, this was 1991. I had moved back after living there years earlier, re- reconnected with some of my friends that were still there. I felt like I was super cool because I was a freshman, you know, starting high school. I was cool. Um And our high school was very small. It was actually connected with the middle school. So it was a small high school. And the the story was all about who the new kids were, as it typically is. And they talked about the Wilkinson brothers. And I heard about the Wilkinson brothers nonstop. And I went to PE class and I sat on the bleachers and this kid was in front of me. All I saw was the back of his head. But when they said Chad Wilkinson and he turned his head to the side, he said, here, I thought, "Ooh." I'm done. <laughs> I like him. I get it. So that I mean, that's that's how I first saw him. And then over time, we just got to know each other because let's be honest, everybody in our high school knew each other. And um, he would walk by my locker, and go, hey. And, you know, I'd get excited. And, and that's that's how we met. So.
0: So what talk to me about, you know, what was a 14, 15 year old Chad? What, what was he like at that age when you first met him?
1: Um, he was really cute. (laughs) He was, he was athletic. He was a soccer player. Um, he ran cross country. He was on our golf club, I guess, for high school, they recruited him to be the kicker for football because, you know, with soccer, he had a good kick. Um, he was still pretty quiet. So there was a group of guys, four or five of them that hung out all the time and they were kind of like if there was popular guys in our high school, which I'm not sure that was really a thing, but that that's who that was. And, um, you know, always kind of quiet, but calm, cool, collected kind of a guy. Yeah.
0: Brilliant. Well, again, as we said, we don't want to dwell too much on, on the early part, as we discussed before, because there's so much to unpack. But so walk me through his journey you know, into the first career and your journey into the first career. I know he ended up again in in my area as far as his education.
1: Yeah. Um, So he uh, he knew he wanted to be a SEAL. His thought was he would go to college and get a degree because – I guess just because in our family, both of our families, that's kind of what we've all done, that, that trajectory of you finish high school and you go to college and you get a degree. And he he realized after being in college that he wasn't going to be able to get like an officer contract. They didn't need them. There was too many of them, et cetera, et cetera. And this is like 1995. So he left college after a year and enlisted in the Navy and did the whole you know, boot camp up in Chicago and then went straight to Bud's. He graduated Bud's in 1996 and that pretty much put him on the trajectory. After that, you kind of get assigned at that time your rate. So he was assigned to become a medic or a corpsman. And he went to a corpsman school, medic training in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, and then he went to his first team, which was still team eight. Meanwhile, we had broken up a few times and gotten back together and it was stressful and, I, you know, I don't even know the best word. But uh, when things had worked out at one point, I mean, I followed him to where he was doing his medic training and enrolled in college there. Um, that only lasted a semester. I, hate, I hated the school and he ended up going to Virginia Beach and I came back home to Florida I went to the University of Florida and he was then at teammate.
2: So.
0: so what I ask, you know, the the serving members normally when they come in, um, and I'll ask you because I'm sure he probably gonna give you some some stories of both sides. Um, when we see war portrayed to us as civilians it's usually very polarizing on on the media either the kill them all that blood uh that blood kill them all that god sort them out or they're all a bunch of baby killers you know and so what i love to do is pull stories from the military themselves um regardless of the politics he found himself you know that sent him to where it where he was first deployed did he ever talk to you about kind of an aha moment that he saw you know either some of the horrendous things that were being done to the people in in that country or you know whatever the factor that he you know justified him um you know being out there and and doing what he was sent to do
1: oh man i (sighs) truthfully no um chad kind of and this is probably a bad negative, but he really sort of compartmentalized his work and he didn't share a lot with me. If anything, he shared with me, it was his belief of I'd rather be fighting them over there than them come fight us here. You know, he was steadfast to that. Um, and to be honest, guys that Annie up to become Navy SEALs, that's absolutely what they want. You know, they they want to go to war. They want to kick indoors. They want to, like, move towards the enemy. Um, So I don't think that there was any sort of aha moment, at least that I could speak of. Um, I think it was just duty to service. and, And that's what was expected of him
0: absolutely and i think it's a key point as you said i mean we, as a firefighter i don't share all the gory details you know to my wife but there was an element of sharing it was a rough day that you know just just kind of be, mm-hmm. decompress a little bit so what about the converse did he ever talk to you about moments that he of that he witnessed of kindness and compassion amongst some of the the combat zones he was in
1: um well, I mean, I do know he would share like, you know, they would fill their packs with like lollipops and bubble gum and things like that and travel around and give it to the kids. And um, I know that when they go overseas, you know, the the there's a focus on on keeping the women, women and children safe and, and separating them when stuff goes down. Somewhat aware of that. But. Yeah, he just. um I know it probably seems so weird to people listening. Like he didn't really tell you anything, but I didn't ask a lot of questions. He always knew he could talk to me if he needed to. And he didn't really share knowing Chad. I think he didn't share um, one because he, he, he was very steadfast to the fact that as a quiet professional, you don't talk about it. And Two, I think he didn't want to share because maybe he just didn't want me to sit around and like worry and pine over what was going on. I, I really was attached to the idea that he was completely confident and very good at what he does. And, and the same with all the guys he works with. You know, you have to go in with that mentality. He's good at what he does. Everything's going to be OK. So, yeah, he didn't he didn't give me a lot of details.
0: Now what about training when he was, you know, back home, what was he doing to keep himself in shape?
1: Well, for years it was CrossFit. So, um he started CrossFit before I did and he was always he was always active though. I mean, he used to do adventure races with his brothers. I mean, the guy likes a physical challenge. Period. I mean, exclamation point. Likes a physical challenge. So, for him it was typically um Working out CrossFit as the years went on, though, and he got a little older, and his body got a little more broken, he definitely stepped away from that. Um, And it was really just the minimal, you know, he would do typical kind of weightlifting, bodybuilding type stuff to keep muscle and mass on him. But their cycle time, their rotation, their training trips, the tempo of all that is so fast that really you're just trying to keep your head above water for the next trip.
0: Yeah. And I can relate. You know, it's it's a more acute version for first responders. It's, you know, day on, day off or day on, two days off, whatever. But yeah, I mean, you just, you never catch up and, and you see that. You see very, very fit young men and women, 10 years in their career And it's like pulling teeth trying to get some people to to exercise. And it's not because they just, you know, decided to give up. It's because the mental and physical beating that they get for years and years and years takes its toll.
1: Yeah, he tried to he joined a a men's like over 40 soccer team, probably the summer before he died. Uh, But then he ended up stopping that because he strained his hamstring and then he tried to do just like running i remember riding a bicycle with him one day while he's running and his back hurt so bad and you know physically his his body was hurting
0: now how did he find crossfit what's the origin story there
1: we got out of the military after 10 years of service and did the whole grass is greener and we moved to raleigh north carolina that's where his some of his family lives and he got a job in pharmaceuticals, like pharmaceutical research. It's pretty big there. And I'm not really sure how I think he saw a billboard for a gym. I mean, we're talking 2006, so early on and went to this gym and joined. And it was good for him because now he's working this, quote, desk job, which is very foreign to him. And it still provided him. And he was young. He was 30 Um he was still able to you know let off some steam and be active and and so that was his first gym in Raleigh, North Carolina, and really the only affiliate he really ever belonged to because then we moved and he was back in the military and he always would work out at work. We owned a gym for a while, but uh, he only worked out there in the very beginning and then he just stopped so
0: now, when he first found CrossFit, um, I actually wrote about my first CrossFit experience in, in a book I wrote, um, and it was amazing the the carryover for the fire service, you know, the actual performance on the fire ground. What was his experience with CrossFit as uh, as an operator, as his actual, you know, application to work?
1: I mean, I think he definitely saw it of value. Um, when he was out of the military, I think that he was doing probably pretty well in the gym cause he was a young guy and coming from a pretty good fitness background moving forward, you know, that type of tempo and workouts as it translates to, you know, carrot packing on with your kit and your H gear and trucking miles and miles. I'm sure there's translation to that. Um, Yeah, he tend to like the long workouts that were just miserable. So I smile because I think how that relates to some of what they do, right, in their work. Spencer Hendel is a CrossFit Games athlete and a good friend of mine. And he texted me yesterday and he did the Chad workout and he's done it multiple times. He did a whole month of hero workouts and the last workout he wanted to do was Chad. And he said he did it with a barbell on his back, which is one of the ways we've done it, and it's miserable to do it that way. And he always, Chad always liked the workouts that were this long suffer. So I'm gonna share a story if it's okay, real please, quick. Please, please. So he, when we had our gym, and I I laugh, if anybody was a member of CrossFit Odyssey in Virginia Beach back in the day, you're gonna remember this. We would program workouts together, and which would also cause a lot of conflict. <laughs> And he decided that we were going to do 400-meter walking lunges with a barbell on the back rack. And every five steps, you were going to stop, stand, and do five strict press with it. Now, if you've ever done 400-meter walking lunges, it doesn't seem that hard. Again, it's not technical, kind of like Chad 1000X, but it's essentially like 400 lunges. And the first time I had ever done that workout was with Chad here, where I am in Coronado on the beach because I didn't know any better. And he said, let's go do this. And I never put together that soft sand lunges would be way worse than it was. So he programs this workout. The gym was up in arms. Of course they did it because they do CrossFit and they'll do what's written on the board, but they moaned and moaned and said, I want to see Chad do this workout. And they said they were going to bring beach chairs and beer and the whole thing. And, (laughs) And coincidentally, um, He had lost a friend, a fellow team guy had passed away. And as they typically do, um, we had all gathered at this local watering hole back home and guys were, you know, toasting him and doing shots. And so Chad was there in his jeans and his collared shirt from his squadron. And he had just done another shot of Jack and Coke. And I said, I hate to tell you this, but the gym is waiting for you to show up. And basically, they want to see you do this workout. He put down the shot glass. I put him in the car. I drove him to the gym. He walked right in the door. He grabbed a barbell out of the rack. He walked right back out the back door, put it on his back and just went. Jeans, collared shirt, didn't talk (laughs) and did it. And uh, that, that like sums up how he was, I guess.
0: That's amazing. Now with, you know, you're talking about losing a teammate and I I want to kind of get into that in a little bit, but you talked about the transition out. Um, one of the things that I've seen people struggle with is just that. Whether it's after ten years, twenty years, thirty years, um, a lot of us identify as the seal, the cop, the firefighter, and if you don't have that thing that you're excited to go to next, that other tribe that you find yourself immersed with, it can be it can be a struggle. Now, with him spending ten years in the teams, I'm assuming he was you know loving and surrounded by. You know, a lot of uh, great, great guys. what you know what made him decide to do it initially, and what was his transition like? Because I can imagine a seal sitting at a desk in a pharmaceutical company maybe has some inner turmoil going on.
1: yeah he He would tell this story to friends and family members that the last time he jumped with the guys, you know, skydive out of a plane. And they all knew he was getting out. they literally fell out of the plane and were like, "You're not gonna do this with your pharmaceutical buddies you know <laughs> um, we got out, and I say we because we uh, I saw us as a team, we got out thinking, like I said, the grass is greener, and we were military kids, but now that we had two small children, I think he and I both thought this." this will be better. This will be a better life. You'll be home. And like, that's what people do, right? You go to a job, you come home, or home on the weekends. That's normal. Um, so when we made the transition out, he and I are both pretty goal-driven, focused individuals. And so we were really dedicated to making this work. However, from the minute we got out, I think we were miserable. And we would lay in bed at night and he would just like, put his hands... What are we doing? I mean, what am I doing? And um, and by all accounts, anybody looking at us from the outside, it's what everybody expresses the American dream to be. He had a good job. You know, he made good money. Uh, we had a house. We literally had a wraparound porch on our house, like a picket fence. Like it was, you know, ugh, for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Him getting out and and I've told this story before, but it seems to make people laugh. And there's there's many stories. One, um, he said that he was sitting in a break room, eating a pink cupcake, celebrating a baby shower. And that's when he was like, what in the hell am I doing? Right. And. Not that he doesn't value babies or baby showers oh cupcakes, (laughs) but such a different different dynamic than a guy that comes from a male dominated environment where, you know, the women that work among them are, are very few and far between, and most of them are also in uniform. So there's a little bit of an understanding of not everything has to be super polite. All the time, we can speak directly to each other that didn't transfer to civilian life. Um, And then just taking away, you said the word tribe, Sebastian Younger, that book, Tribe, it's one of my favorites. Um, I also listened to your book and heard about your first Helen, and it made me laugh. Oh, thank you. Um, (laughs) And um, I think that the transition out for military is, is. Is way more difficult and can potentially produce a lot more problems than people recognize. People see it as a solution, right? It's like, okay, I've served in the military. Here is my next step. This is a positive. This is good. I'm gonna move on to the next step in my career or the next phase of my life. And all that can be true. But what I found is that. I think that it creates a lot of hardship for them and and for, for different reasons, right? If you take anybody who's done a job, let's take the average military guy, you can retire at 20, men or women, retire at 20. If you've done any job for 20 years, trying to reinvent yourself, I believe would be hard for anyone, right? If I've been a school teacher for 20 years, if I've been a plumber for 20 years, it doesn't matter, insert the job, that's your identity, that's... That's, um, I don't want to say heroic, but that's really like a testament of okay, how am I going to change this up? How am I going to redirect my life? And now I can only talk about SEALs because that's the community I know. Now you're talking about this elite group of people that more or less are supposed to live by a certain creed. In that, you know, we don't advertise the nature of our work. We're an ordinary man doing, you know, uncommon things. We are fiercely loyal. We're brave, fearless. I will stand next to the man next to me and protect him. I mean, there's a lot that goes into that. A lot that remains unspoken. There's just this, whether you want to call it brotherhood, whether you want to call it tribe whether you want to call it a cult, I don't know, but there's some sort of bond that happens that is not easily recreated in the civilian world. And what these guys have are what, what they call, referred to as team rooms. And I would imagine in the firehouse, there's something similar where all the people, all the firefighters sit around in one common room. And that's, that's where the bonding happens without, without saying, hey, guys, we're going to bond right now. <laughs> But it's where, you know, you share stories and you share stories about your family and and your dogs and vacations that you take and goals and whatever. When that team room disappears and they go into whatever their next phase is. That's hard for them. Yeah, because because how can you be sure they're going to still feel like they belong somewhere?
0: Yeah. Well, exactly. I think what I've seen my own transition out, and there was, there was you know, the universe basically kicked me up the ass and, and said, get out the fire service. <laughs> There's something else for you to do now. But what worked for me was the goal was the same. The whole point of this podcast is to help people, is to stop people hurt and stop people dying, which was my role as a firefighter. And then where I see people really struggle is, you know, for example, you're a SEAL. You know, you, you as you said, you, you, you're around this amazing band of brothers. You know, you would die for each other, literally. Um, you're doing, you're serving selflessly. You're you're being compassionate in you know to complete strangers in different countries, and then you come back, and then you're told that the bottom line is the most important thing, the profit margin. You know, all these things, and I think that's what's really hard too. The people that find themselves in another arena where there's brother or sisterhood built into that where there's a common goal to make the world better and whatever it looks like. I mean, you could be, you know, black rifle coffee with what they do with their kind of altruistic arm, that kind of thing. But yeah, if you find yourself in a corporation and, you know, you know, working secure at you somewhere, whatever it is, um, I think that really compounds not only that loneliness, but that just yearning for service, yearning to go to bed knowing that you made the world a little better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, you know, I think that it gets even more complex, the loss of, of I'll say team room, but, or transition to civilian life. I think it goes a little deeper now in today's world for our military that are still in, that are still serving, but because it, whether it's the state of our country or their personal mental struggle, whether it's their, you know, PTSD, TBI, blast injury. um, I think some of the mental hardship that many of them have and their conflict with what their service has meant has also created uh, sort of a, a separation of them, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if I'm clear enough on that, but Do you follow what I'm trying to say?
0: Completely. Yeah, I've actually had I deliberately found a few guests because I've seen, again, I'm a civilian. I'm a firefighter from England originally, but I see our veteran population really struggling after this last withdrawal. You know, what was it for nothing? You know, and I just had a great conversation with a guy called Alan Clark, who uh, was in the army um, in Vietnam was basically literally waiting for his helicopter out and they got ambushed. he got lost both his legs and he's written an amazing book on, you know, the industrial military complex. And that's, you know, a huge thing. I mean, world war two, I told him this, when I went home recently, I went to the Imperial war museum in London. They had this whole, they have world war one, they have world war two, they have some of the other conflicts, but then they have a whole Auschwitz exhibit. And you look at that and you're like, how could we not go to war? then you know that was absolutely justified but some of the other conflicts we've been at yes there is an element where you know a lot of our special operations communities say yeah we should have gone in we should have done our thing we should have left but you see war prolonged you see you know so many people coming home in coffins or missing limbs Um, Mm -hmm. and you know at the same time people are making a lot of money and all these different elements like you said are you know compounding pieces of that Jenga puzzle you know that, that are that are waiting to collapse and you know i think the guilt and shame of going out there losing people you know bringing home memories and then seeing a city occupied by the very people that you were fighting how how can it not have an impact on our veterans
1: right and uh, yeah this has been a topic i've i've been i don't know if the word's fortunate but i've been around multiple conversations in the last few weeks with a variety of people that bring an interesting perspective, whether it's I was with a bunch of retired Air Force pilots a couple of weeks ago or current military guys or even civilians. Um, and, you know, the truth is, is we could sit here and argue whether we should have gone to war or shouldn't have gone to war, but, but it's done that that is the past. But now we need to ask ourselves If we have, and I'm going to give rough numbers, but if we have upwards of 4,000 people who were KIA since 9-11, but we've had 30,000 die by suicide, who's winning these wars? Now, of course, that doesn't include, you know, I'm including Vietnam veterans. I mean, that that number isn't just our our 9-11 military, but at the same time, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And so how how are these conflicts affecting our men and women for the long term? And clearly they are. And what are we doing about it? All I see is a lot of people talking about it.
0: Yeah, I see a lot of people doing push-ups too.
1: Oh, uh, don't, <laughs> don't get me started.
0: All right. Well, um, well then just to, to go back on the timeline for a moment. So you know, he's there holding a cupcake.
1: <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> there he was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, prior, uh, to, prior to that, though, with that transition, had you seen anything that was a warning sign? don't well, I mean a warning sign because obviously, you know, you didn't know until you knew. But were there any kind of changes in him? I mean, that's a, still a hell of a service. Ten years. He lost people at that point.
1: Yeah. Um and this is kind of tough. Um Chad, Chad didn't he? He his youth, you know. I mean, there was one time he egged an MP car, a, a military police car, on base as a teenager, you know. And I think he he punched a wall in his house one time as a teenage boy. And he this was great. It was in the hallway, and he covered it up with a with a kitty cat poster he found in his sister's room because that wasn't <laughs> obvious. But he wasn't um he wasn't a guy that flew off the handle. He he was always very. He wasn't kind of like your quintessential, just like tough guy. Um, But when we were out of the military, he did get a little funny about, um, honestly, my interaction. Like sometimes he didn't like men talking to me. And that was weird um, because there was nothing to, to constitute that. There was no reason for it. We had a very good marriage. We, you know, all those sort of things, and that that was interesting to me because it was the one thing that would create kind of a short fuse in him during that time. I don't know why I just thought about that, but I, but I did, and um, and that was that was really it. Everything else was pretty good. He was working out regularly, doing his CrossFit thing. He was going to work. We had two little kids, which you know think you've got kids you can understand it's just like it was craziness um but he didn't really show all the things that i saw later no that came later
0: now within those 10 years had he had any any injuries that that might have been obviously you know the breaches and everything there's tbi regardless of injury but but had he been hurt Had he had anything catastrophic happen
1: uh, he wasn't a helicopter crash. It was in training. And it's not, you know, it wasn't super high up. I think the deal was the wind kind of caught it and slammed it on its side. Um, I do know someone passed away, was killed, and he was trying to dig him out. Um, and it caught on fire. And I think he was more or less told from leadership to, to back away. And so I I can only imagine he had a concussion, you know, probably had a a TBI, you know, playing soccer. He had a couple concussions growing up in his youth. But that was really the only thing that I'm really aware of. Um, I do think that always stuck with him, though.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I can testify. I think I touched on it in the book, you know, the inability to save. And you're told if you do, I'm sure he was, you know, if you. Do X, Y, and Z in this, this helicopter operation, then the result will be success. And yeah. then it doesn't, you know, if you're a paramedic, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z, then the person's going to sit up and hug you and bring you a cake the next shift. No, <laughs> not even close. Yeah. So that inability to save, especially if it's one of your own. I mean, yeah, absolutely. That in itself, aside from what he saw from combat, aside from all the other elements, that's another layer of this, you know, this, this crushing weight.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree.
0: So, back to the cupcake. What mm. what was the discussion about him going back in again?
1: <laughs> he I think the discussion was always the discussion from the time we got out. I think it was just, you know, this constant teeter-totter with him and I and 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 I I was the one he left for work one day and I flipped his tie. He wore a suit and tie. And this isn't against anybody who wears a suit and tie. But for this girl, that's not attractive. It's just not. And I flipped his tie and I said, that's stupid. And we're going to go back in the military. <laughs> and I I do feel and this has been a little bit of guilt I carry. If I hadn't said that, I'm not so sure he would have pushed to go back in because because he was a guy that did the right thing. And to him, he was doing the right thing by, you know, choosing his family and being there for his kids. So that's hard because then you wonder if we wouldn't have, would would we still be, you know, living this civilian life somewhere? I don't know. Um, and yeah, so we put a sign in our yard. We sold our house in a few days. We got rid of almost half of what we owned. We put a small chunk in storage and we went out to the West Coast
0: now leading up to that, one thing I haven't really you know touched on yet is the military family side, so during that whole ten years, we kind of skipped over that you know you you had children you got married, so um you know, what was your experience as a military wife the first time?
1: That was such a great time in our lives it It really was a great time, and most of this was was well majority of it was pre nine 11 too. So when I first came up to Virginia beach, I lived with him and, um, there was five basically team guys in a condo and me. And I look back fondly. I actually just saw our friend of ours that owned that condo last weekend. I haven't seen him in forever. And we shared stories and laughed and that, that felt really good to kind of reminisce on that. Um, We were young and before we had kids, that's who we hung out with. That's who we were with on the weekends were the other guys and their girlfriends. We were probably one of the first in our group to be married. So most people were girlfriends, but um, it was definitely close and um, you were just a part of something. You, you, I knew that if he wasn't around and and I needed something, there was, you know, I could call one of the other guys or call one of the other girls. And when you go to the teams, originally you do what's called an in-doc, which is kind of just an introductory meeting for the wives. And ultimately it's pointless. They basically say, don't ask your husband what he does and don't ask any questions and just be patient. I mean, it's very general, but I I met some of my my greatest friends of my life that I still have today that you know twenty years ago um, and so they supported us getting out and we stayed in touch and everything but I think it was also hard for us to see them move forward in this career and this life and this community and we'd separated from it knowing we chose that but we separated from it.
0: Yeah. Now in that 10 years, had he thought about going to seal team six before?
1: Yeah. So he had asked, I think I was pregnant with my daughter. He came home from a deployment and we went and got some Mexican food while all the like big conics boxes were being brought back for deloading. And he said, Hey, I think I want to go over here. And it was the only time, the only time I ever have said, no, no. And, um, I don't even know why I said no. I I think I just said no, because I knew what what little I did know was that he was a Navy SEAL. But like those were Navy SEALs that were like really, really doing stuff, if that makes sense. And I was pregnant and we're having a child. And I just thought, I, that's kind of a lot for me. And he he didn't. He didn't scream then. But these guys, I mean, tier one operators, they're not guys that are going to kind of sort of do something. They're not guys that are like, okay, if I'm second place, that's that's, you know, second's the first loser. I mean, (laughs) it just pays to be a winner. Those are those are their mottos. And so. um, I would I would guess that there are many of them, especially if you're already an East Coast guy, that that's your long term goal. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So. What was that journey like for him? He goes back in, which is incredible mm-hmm. in itself, but not only does he go back in, in his 30s, but then he he pursues it this time.
1: Yeah, he, um, and I say like, oh, we packed up and went in. I mean, there was a process and he he did a lot of talking and, you know, paperwork and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, he, we ended up coming to the West Coast for a little bit and with the plans of coming to a West Coast team, but he had met, um part of leadership that kind of could make the call on sending him to screen for SIL team six early. And so our life out here was short lived and fast tracked there. And because we like to put a lot on our plate, I, at the same time, CrossFit had been really growing in my life. Um, and I had outfitted a garage gym and had people coming to it. So I decided to open a gym at the same time that he's screening to go to damn which people really don't know a lot about that, but it is, it's incredibly stressful. It's very stressful. And to have those two things and we had small kids. So my daughter was um, six and I think my son was uh, four. Yeah. Three and a half, four. So it was very stressful for us. And this was end of 2007, beginning of 2008 through 2008. That was a hard year. Um, We moved back to Virginia Beach. We lived in an apartment. We didn't even buy a house right away. We weren't sure where we wanted to live. We weren't even sure if he was going to make it. And that would mean he would work on kind of another area of Virginia Beach, a longer commute. And thankfully, that happened in my early 30s. And I had the energy to do it. I'm not sure I could do it now. But it was was hard. Yeah, it's hard.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, well then, so again, you know, another, another 10 years. When you look back now with this, you know, this new lens that you have with the second, you know, chapter of his uh, military service, did you start noticing anything over and above, as you mentioned some of the kind of jealousy that you'd seen in the middle?
1: Oh, that, that grew quite a bit. Um I, That's what's hard is, and I've said this many times, and I feel like people probably think I sound like a broken record, but when you are married to someone like this, and I'd say someone like this, like this type of person, this mentality, this, you know, Navy seal, but also someone who is very focused, Um, they're very driven, they like to do everything right the first time. It's really easy to just chalk up the things that they do as as generalizations of how they just all are, if that makes sense. So these guys, they're not. Well, some of them are big talkers, but most of them are pretty quiet. You know, they're pretty reserved. They they, for especially Chad, you know, he would be the one in the back of the room. You'd be at a barbecue and you probably wouldn't even notice he was there for the first hour because he's just a quiet guy. And so for a guy like that to become more quiet. I didn't think it was that weird. I just thought he's probably stressed with work or maybe he's been around too many people and he needs to kind of chill out a while. His sleep got really bad and you talk about this in your book and and I can't, I think that that holds a key for a lot of people. And when I say that, I don't think sleep is a cure. I think that sleep has a huge play on our health, our overall health. And most of these guys, their sleep gets pretty bad, whether they can't sleep or they sleep, but they can't stay asleep. Um, Many of them end up, you know, on like CPAP machines, which is a little weird, right? For a guy in his 30s or early 40s who's not a smoker, who's not obese to be on a CPAP. That's just weird. Um, As I've said before, many of them, you know, their testosterone goes off the rails. Again, I feel like that should be a red flag and not normal for, for a guy with this type of athletic background, et cetera, to, to have that go off. Um, and so when I, I knew the, the biggest thing for him was sound and light uh, in addition to his sleep, which I kind of always had the pulse on. We have two dogs at home and he literally would come, and they bark all the time, unfortunately. However, I think they're magical and can't separate with them. And he sees no purpose in dogs he He was like, "I don't understand why you have an animal that lives in your house. He thought it was like the most bizarre concept um from a guy that always grew up with dogs by the way, always had a dog that really? doesn't like him. and probably worked yeah. around
0: dogs too. I had will chesney on. I know he was on yeah. bin Laden raids, so he must have been with them for a bit
1: and he did not like he did not like the work dogs at all, but um whenever our dogs would bark it really sent him through the roof and and obviously looking back now he did have some conversations with me about like we need to get rid of them like they need to find another home i would have i would do that in a second today if i would have known how triggering that was for him but again here's a guy that doesn't like dogs anyway so of course he doesn't like them barking his sensitivity to light he had really, really beautiful blue eyes. So, you know, people with light eyes, typically sensitive to light anyway, his was probably more than normal. Um, Things like that. And he would lose his balance. He would always play it off as a joke. Um, He got to be where he was really forgetful, which was not like him at, all, not even in the least. But one morning, I mean, I remember four or five times him coming back in the kitchen, like he forgot his coffee and he left and then he needed something for his gym bag and then he left and then he needed his car keys. And you're just thinking, man, like take a minute, get your head straight because clearly you're somewhere else. But I don't think it was that he was somewhere else. I, I think his brain starts to get to a point where you can't remember Basic things. I mean, I've talked with guys that literally leave post it notes around their house, reminding them to do things, like reminding them to lock the door. That's not necessary if you're not 90, you know? Um, I talked with a girlfriend too not long ago, and we both kind of looked at each other and we both shared a story in which we talked to our husbands. This was years ago now, and you have a conversation as you might with your spouse. And whatever it is, whatever tomorrow's activities are, your son needs to go to soccer. I need to pick this up, insert whatever a typical conversation is. And the next day, he didn't remember it. You know, he asked a question like, what are we doing today? What? How do you not know that? We had a 15-minute conversation last night. So, again, I just always kind of put it in the bucket of he has a lot on his plate. He's really stressed. Um, He's tired because he doesn't sleep. I didn't ever put it in the bucket of, wow, he probably has some real brain injuries that have occurred due to his service, and this might be something that, that needs to be checked out. I wish I could go back and make a list of the things that I noticed at the time, and that's what I encourage wives to do now. Start documenting those things when they happen. And is there a pattern? Is there something that happens time and time again? Make a diary, I guess.
0: So it's it's so interesting because firstly you were describing me <laughs> to a, to a lesser degree. Did he okay, I'll give you an example. Did he dislike going to say say restaurants that had TVs everywhere? The, you know, there was a lot oh of noise. Oh my gosh.
1: Those guys are like quintessential, hyper vigilant. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say crazies, but like, <laughs> you know, he 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 didn't like loud places. And like all of them, if you go somewhere, they have to sit facing the door. Um and it's just that hyper vigilant piece, you know, he wants to know what he's gonna encounter or be exposed to before it's there, whether it's a person he knows and recognizes or a threat, you know, in the bar, or does a fight break out? Like whatever it may be, he kind of always needed to know. Um, and I've I've shared this before too, but it, I, it, I always think about this is that I, was to, I would talk to him as wives do and he wouldn't listen. And so it's that whole selective listening, but it's not. It's not selective listening with these guys. It's that they literally don't hear you. And I would go, Chad, Chad, Chad. Chad. (laughs) And then finally he'd look at me and he said to me one day, you know, when you're talking to me, I have to sit here and think about it. And I have to think, well, that's not going to kill me. And that's not going to kill me. And he's like pointing around the room. And that's not going to kill me. And I remember going, and, and I, you know, I regret saying, I kind of just like laughed it off, but I, I understand that now. And I think that that would be a very exhausting place to live.
0: Yeah. And see, for the fire service, we don't have that kind of threat assessment going on. But what I'm, what I found myself doing was like, all right, you know, if a, you know, an active shooter comes in, where are the exits? If, you know, there's a fire, how do we get out? You know, is this room sprinkled? I mean, all these things, which, you know, take it down a notch, aren't bad thought processes. But when they consume you, you know, it becomes distracting. And I had, you know, the, the, the memory issues and then I would get angry. I can't find my keys and I start, you know, effing and blinding and throwing things around where the hell I put them. Um, and I can attest now three years out of the fire service where I've been sleeping and working on trying to rebuild, you know, what's left of my brain. Um, yeah, it's completely different now. So it, it is reversible and as you know, as TBI element. I didn't have as much certainly as, you know, someone in, um, you know, active combat, but, um, did martial arts for a long time, took a lot of, you know, head strikes that way too. But yeah, I mean, these are all real things, you know, the, 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 just the, the maddening element. Like my son likes to go to the, the fair, you know, the regular like fun fair. I tell his mom to take him. I can't deal with that. And it's not like I'm going to freak out. It's just like, I want to go do something fun with my son. That is the absolute opposite of fun. Crowds, yeah. lights, noise, you know, crap rides, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, but, you know, these are very, very, you know, scary warning signs because, these are men who, you know, jump out of an airplane and, and go behind enemy, li- enemy lines and, you know, can navigate underwater. Or these are firefighters that can wake up at three in the morning and, you know, go search a house, come out and then work a pediatric, you know, cardiac arrest, but mm-hmm. then can't find their fucking cows, you know, their car keys. It's yeah. just, it's, it's crazy, but that's how we are. And it's, it's so, you know, hard to get people to take a step back and look like you said the brain injuries themselves the, the compounding element then of a brain injury and sleep deprivation the hyper vigilance the you know the the um, uh, organizational stress if you happen to be under leadership that sucks that adds another layer of compounding element and you know this this results in this perfect storm some people thank goodness, never get to, you know, ideation, but a lot of people find themselves in addiction, anxiety, depression, and, you know, some of these other areas that aren't labeled as quote unquote suicide.
1: I mean, yeah. it's And I've talked about this just like the systemic derailment in the body, but the way these brain injuries can actually like change kind of that, that composition of the brain and the wiring and what happens and, and, on one hand, you know, drinking or doing drugs or, or some of these terrible coping mechanisms, it takes that that sting away and and boost your body with other stuff. But also the changes in the brain are allowing you to make those decisions. You're, you're making decisions you wouldn't normally make decisions, you know, like that's a bad idea um, because of because of brain injury, and blast injury. And. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just. It's hard and it's complex, and and I don't want to necessarily say, oh, every all of our military, you know, have have some sort of brain injury, etc. But my community that I know and are familiar with, if you're a SEAL or a Tier One operator, insert another branch, and you have done, you know, a few years of service and multiple combat deployments. And you've been exposed to a handful of these things, I think it would it's worth your due diligence to understand the way it affects the brain and become as familiar as you can with the potential signs and symptoms that we know of. Um, and there's still so much more that needs to be researched and studied but yeah
0: yeah well and you said as well about you know wishing that you'd known. Or well, you know, paid attention. And I think that's the problem with the survivor. I and mean, we talked before we start recording my, my wife, Becky, her boyfriend before me took his own life and I watched, you know, I was there, I think a year and a half after she lost him, Danny. Um, and so still, you know, very, very deep in the grieving process. And, um, you know, it was, it was so hard.
1: I think for, for me thinking about Chad and, and I've had, I had so many people afterwards say like, I can't believe that, that, That it was Chad, you know, and and that's what happens post death. People always sing people's praises, you know, and they say he was so great and he was one of the best operators and a great leader. And he took me under his wing and he did this. And I'll be honest, there's a part of me. I'm like, well, who didn't like him? I mean, someone had to not like him. Not everybody's liked by everybody, but. My husband, of course, I think he's great, and I think he's wonderful. And the largest thing I thought about him was that he was completely unbreakable. To me, he was just he was everything, um, not just like my spouse and my best friend, but also this really successful Navy seal, as the media plays them to be, and the world plays them to be and and even I fell. I don't want to say victim, but fell trapped to that illusion that he's this Navy SEAL. He's he's a total badass, really. And nothing's going to get him. Um, If anything was going to get him, it was going to be by the hand of a terrorist. And and that's what I kind of had my mind wrapped around is that if he gets killed, it's going to be one of those shitty wrong place, wrong time. And, and that's going to suck, but it would be at the hand of another, you know, suicide isn't that way. And that's, that's, that's hard to carry.
0: Absolutely. Well, that's what I was going to say. So with the, 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 I wish I had, you know, done X when they were alive, I feel, I mean, I, like I said, I fell into this five years ago. Kirk Parsley was one of the big, big, uh, you know, um, voices that really turned me initially this was one of the reasons why I started this podcast I'm listening to him talking about sleep and testosterone and I'm like we're not talking about this in the fire service you know we need to we need to hear this but you know you we did the best with what we had and I love that phrase because at that time with the knowledge that was around you didn't know this no one was talking about TBIs and low T and you know um you know all these kind of other areas of mental health you know suicide was was a lot of people were saying was cowardly and you know all these horrendous kind of you know um misinterpretations of what was really going on um so yeah to 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 kind of not only is that person gone now but then the other the person's left behind is left with that kind of guilt and shame as well of i should have we shouldn't have re re reenlisted you know if only we'd stayed in it but who knows you know we don't know at at that moment you did the best with what you had
1: yeah Mm -hmm. and i You know, that's pretty low on my Richter scale for guilt, because um, what I know that's even more overpowering than that thought is that Chad was born to do this. I mean, this was this was in his heart. This was his pulse. This this like, in my opinion, flowed through his blood. I, I can't necessarily say that towards the end of his career. I think that there was some hardship, but thinking about when we were in civilian life and then him being a team guy, like that's just, that's who he was. And, um, I just wish the ending was a little different.
0: Yeah. So do I Yeah. Um, well, before we obviously get to, you know, to however we end up kind of talking about that event, um, tell me about his, uh, his sudden love for climbing.
1: (laughs) Well, my guy liked goals. He liked physical challenges. Uh, there was a group of guys in 2012, bunch of team guys. They went and climbed Kenya and Kilimanjaro. And that was kind of his first exposure. Well, they I think they'd done maybe a training trip. I'm not sure if that was before or after, but um, out west in, in Washington state. But for the most part, that was his first exposure to, you know, that high altitude climbing. And I think he really enjoyed it. I think he enjoyed the challenge of it even more. He wanted to do things that not everybody could do, (laughs) you know, hence go be a seal. So for him, he did this and he thought, wow, I would love to be able to climb the seven summits because not everybody's rogering up to go do that. Um, and it also, for him, it's not something you do necessarily with a massive pack of people. He can kind of be a lone wolf as he was. He could go at it alone. And I think that's probably what draw him, drew him to it. He wanted to climb Aconcagua shortly after Kilimanjaro, but it's expensive. And, he, you know, he's doing this on his own. He's not going through. It's not a work thing. It's a personal thing. Um And it was really expensive. And I kept telling him to go do it. And he felt guilty, you know, as the man of the house and taking the money and then taking like three weeks away from work to go do it. Um, And I kept encouraging him. And so he trained and climbed Aconcagua, which is the second highest summit below Everest. It's the highest summit in South America. It's in Argentina. And he climbed that in January, 2018. So you realize it takes you three, three and a half weeks. You travel down, you know, you acclimate a little bit. It's, it's, it's a serious process. Um, But he did it. And I think that it was really hard. I mean, he came home from that trip and walked inside and he was skinny. He'd lost so much weight. And he said, baby, that was fucking hard. And. I really didn't hear him say that about anything. Um, Even if he thought something was hard, he probably wouldn't tell me. He'd just keep it to himself. But he said it was hard. And I said, well, you did it. You know, you should be proud of yourself. And he said, Denali's next. And I said, okay. And he never got to Denali. Um, So, yeah, for Chad, I think he just liked the physical challenge. Here's, Here's something interesting that probably a lot of people don't know, which was hard for me to learn. I had asked him if anybody was going to climb Aconcagua with him. And he said, I asked him and they, they can't, they can't go. And which I understood again, the reasons we said it's expensive to climb. And two, it takes a long time away from your family. And one of our friends, um, our best friends, he, he couldn't go for those reasons, which I knew a couple of his other friends after his death, I asked one in particular, yeah, he said that he wanted you guys to go, but you couldn't go. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, you couldn't climb Aconcagua. He said he never asked me. That's weird. You know, that's hard to understand, like, why he would tell me that he asked them when in reality he didn't. And I don't know if he didn't because he didn't want to put the stress on them of making the decision of family and money or if he didn't want to ask them because he felt like. Why would they go? Like, why would they want to go be with me? Why would they want to go do this trip? I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. But um, coincidentally, he climbed that January of 2018. And in January of 2020, a group of guys went and climbed it. Really? hmm
0: Well, you touched on something a minute ago. And I want to make sure that we hit this You know, before we move forward. Um, did any of his you know, fellow teammates see any warning signs? Because I had a few people on recently. One was uh, one couple, uh, Tom and Jen Satterley. I don't know if you've come across them before, but Tom was a Delta operator.
1: Uh-huh. I know who they are. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So again, I think it was Tom was talking about, you know, none of his teammates saw a difference and it's the same in police and fire and all this. Well, because we're all slowly getting broken down the same way. So to us, we all look normal. So, did you see an element of that? You know, w- were any of his teammates noticing anything, or were they so kind of consumed by their own um, their own journey that they weren't noticing each other's changes?
1: I, I mean, I think that's a really great point. I, to my knowledge, no, they didn't see anything. I mean, no one has come up and expressed to me during, prior, during, or after the fact, like, "Hey, this is what was going on with him. They all expressed the same as me that we were ultimately utterly shocked. Um, but again, to your point of everybody is kind of on this same sort of trickle down and breakdown speaks back to what we mentioned about the separation of the, quote, team room before, before they're really gone from the military. There, there's already this like um, cracking in the system, so to speak, because so many of them are breaking down. It's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, it's, that's the thing. Even with with the fire service, you know, our dinner table is is that. But even even silly elements like COVID, you know, the, the, they're telling them to all eat in different corners of the station. You know, cell phones are taking people away. Individual rooms, which are great for sleep, but again, if you don't deliberately come to that that dining room and and talk with each other, you're losing that that yeah. tribe. You're losing that that offloading of of you know trauma through storytelling.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, you touched on he was happy until towards the end of his career. So again, I'm going to give you the reins for this. You, you, you know, you went to a very specific place with Jocko, um, you, you know, whatever you want to, wherever you want to go, talk to me about where you started seeing maybe the, the, the lack of drive, um, and then, you know, to, to that horrible day in 2018.
1: Yeah, he, um, He just did, he just did some weird things in the last few weeks. So the last birthday, our birthdays are three days apart. And my last birthday I had with him, we spent doing one of my favorite things. So just riding beach cruisers on the boardwalk at Virginia beach and, you know, kind of having some day drinks. And at one point, and I didn't, didn't think anything of this until after his death, but um, at one point he said, he asked me if I was happy, I think. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. I was like, I am so happy. I love you. I have our kids. We have a home. We have jobs that we both like. Like we are we are really lucky. And even though our life is really stressful, and it was, our careers were busy and hectic and stressful, I felt really lucky. And that's what I told him. And he said, he just looked at me and he went, huh you think so? And I didn't think anything about it at the time, but you know, if there's, there's a few things that really haunt me and it's that conversation crushes me because that's a time in in a conversation between a husband and wife that you would think that person would reciprocate it. I didn't say it so he would reciprocate it. I said it because that's genuine. But at the same time, in a normal conversation, that's when the other person would speak up and say, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And he he didn't say it back. Um, That hurts. Um, I've also shared how he hung all his awards up in our stairwell, which he had he had a lot of awards, as as many of them do, and we hung them in these beautiful frames and plaques, and they're they're beautiful. And we'd had them for years, and he wouldn't hang them up. I mean, we spent a lot of money to do this, and they, he wouldn't hang them up. And and Chad, being Chad, would say, "I don't want someone to come in my house, and then I'm like, hey, here's me," because he was just so uh, under radar guy. And I'm thinking, it's our house. Like, if people come in our house they already know us. <laughs> they already know who you are. Um, and he hung him up in the stairwell, which was really kind of weird, but I kind of chalked it up to, you know, everything's a compromise in marriage and we're going to roll with it. Uh, and that was, that was about three weeks before he died on October 10th. We got into an argument, which wasn't very often at all, but I got frustrated because his new job that he was supposed to have, he was supposed to be home more. That was kind of the whole point. Turns out that wasn't the case. He was gone just as much, if not more, all the time. I got to go on this trip. I got to go on this trip. I got to go on this trip. And I remember saying to him, I feel like I am just sitting here waiting to live my life. <clears throat> and. Uh, he didn't say anything. He just left for work. Um, so, you know, when you lose someone, and I, and I can't speak to another type of death, but I would imagine after you lose someone, especially as we say, out of timeline, meaning I wasn't 90, you know, he was in his 40s. We were supposed to live a lot longer. So, out of timeline, you replay parts of your life. But when you lose someone to suicide, wow, that's. As I say, punishing—it's—it's punishing. There's no other way around it. And so, these are the things that stay on loop in my head. Um, And so, um, I had to work on the weekend, and he had told me that he didn't really feel like he was doing the right thing. He felt like he wasn't really in the right place at work, and he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. And he said, "I know I can't really tell you much, but it helps to just talk." And I said, OK, because it was very cryptid. I didn't know what he was really doing at work. And so I said to him, you know, Chad, you're so goal oriented and you're so driven. You've gone and accomplished every goal you've gone after. This might be the first time you change your mind. It's OK. You can change your mind. And he said, well, what happens if they, they kick me out and they tell me I have to go back to California or go somewhere else? And our thing was, wherever you go, I go. So um, I now have it tattooed on me, but it's what we always said to each other. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. So I left for work. Um, I knew he was stressed. I knew he had a lot on his plate. The kids called me at one point that weekend and just said, you know, dad's just laying on the stairs. And I assured them that he just was stressed out. Um, And I came home Sunday night and knew that he wasn't okay, and just try to get him to lay down with me in bed. Um, But when I woke up the next morning, he was gone. And I couldn't find him. And, you know, I looked through the house. I looked in the garage. His car was there. He wasn't working out. Maybe he went for a walk. Maybe he went for a run. Maybe he went for a bike ride. Like all the things I'm trying to tell myself. Um, I called his dad. I don't even know why I called his dad. I just felt like I needed to call his dad and say, I can't find Chad. Um, he was supposed to leave on a work trip that day. So I thought, well, maybe he left. Took me a while. Um, I got in my car. I started to drive around and look for him and then realized that's pointless because honestly, which direction am I going to head? Who knows? So it took me a long time and I called work, which is not something that any, I think the wives do very easily. It's just kind of one of those it's a little almost like forbidden. I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily a statement from work or necessarily just this like underbelly of culture we've created. Um, and they assured me that he was probably on his way to work and, um, yeah, he was missing for 34 hours. So there's so much to say about that. Um, Yeah, I couldn't find him at all on Monday, and I kind of just held fast to whatever he was doing. He must not be able to talk to me about it. And um, at 4.58, I got a call from the work saying that he didn't report to muster, and they're heightening the alert. And within two minutes, there were police at my door asking me if I knew where my husband was. So... Um, you know, I, it's just not how it was supposed to happen. So I just had some random cop say, ma'am, do you know where your husband is? And I said, no, I can't find him. And, um, within a minute or two, he kind of reached in his car. It was a little awkward. And he just sat, stood up out of his car and said, ma'am, sorry to tell you, but we've found your husband and he's taken his life. So here you have a Navy SEAL who served almost 21 years in multiple combat deployments, who has a silver star, who has the bronze star with valor, has a Navy Marine Corps medal, who is well respected, um, who's done well in, in most of what he sought out to do in life. And here is his wife who gets told by a cop who doesn't even know her first name. That sucks. That
2: sucks. And you don't get a do-over. So... So, on top of... um, Sorry.
0: Like I said, don't apologize. Don't apologize, please. Um,
2: You know, on top of... um, Um... It's such a weird thing because in this life that we live, we honestly, I I don't want to speak for all the wives, but I do think that there are us who have to really think through if our husbands were killed because we've attended, unfortunately, many funerals of our friends in these years. And what I always kind of would hold on to is that one, he would be doing what he loved to do. He would be protecting the country. And that hopefully it would be very quick and he wouldn't even see it coming. I don't know that, you know, I don't, was he scared? I don't know. He was alone. It's just, um, it's just really shitty. (laughs) It's really shitty. And He didn't deserve to sit out there that long. I didn't deserve to worry that long. There's just, I don't know what else to say. So there's a lot of um, additional trauma for myself that I don't feel like had to happen. But, but it is what it is
0: well firstly again I'm, I'm sorry to you know pull you down that path but at the same time you know this is the raw emotion that these events create you know and what's so tragic is just like you said you know when a firefighter is killed in a burning building you know when a cop's killed you know protecting the school whatever it is that's what we signed up for but and i'm you know obviously we're going to explore some of the contributing factors in, in a minute, but when our men and women come home, well, they're already home, and they're responders or you know whatever profession they're in, and they succumb to this, it's absolutely tragic. And I think what really has bothered me for a long time is, as I touched on earlier, you know that that kind of concept that suicide is cowardice, and you keep hearing people say, well, you know, think of your family, think of your kids. What I've learned through this, through you know being married to to someone who lost someone to suicide as well is you t- you mentioned the the miswiring that's what I see over and over again, whether it's you know the childhood trauma you know the t b i the sleep deprivation there's these men and women seem to get to a point this is two things that can ar- happen over and over again it's the I want the pain to stop element which you know again I completely understand, but it's also when you stand on a very, very tall building, you get to the edge. There's that invisible hand that pushes you back. Whoa, What are you doing? Get back! You know, you kind of get that whole kind of adrenal response. When people have the self-talk that you are a burden, and this suicide is selfless, your family will be better off without you. That is, I think, what people need to talk about because clearly, Chad was a you know was an incredible warrior that served his community his country his family so you know he's he's not going to be quote unquote selfish and do this because that goes against everything that he is as a human being so these tbi's the seed deprivation the hormonal disruption you know, all these elements that come into play are wiring the brain so poorly that these men and women believe that this is also an act of service an act of selflessness and that is that is a conversation
2: we need to have yeah i mean
1: yeah it's <laughs> um i know that i can sit here and say okay i we donated his brain to research I know that he had interface astral glial scarring due to blast wave injury. So there was physical injury to his brain due to combat and training. All those facts make sense to me. The reading that I've done, makes me understand that uh, what you just said, re, you know, the misfiring and wiring of the brain and this kind of like distortion of thoughts that all makes sense. But at the end of the day, we're all human. And I've said before, the unconscious doesn't care about facts. And so he and I, the people that we were, you know, as as driven and focused as he was, I'm similar in that way. And we like to do things well and we like to work hard and to to have a spouse that you saw as your ultimate teammate for 27 years, not share any of his struggle with you. That that's what I want to change from this as well. Like I want the men and women who are struggling to please say something to, I always say spouse or first responder, like who is the person in your life? At least give them the opportunity to try to ease that burden and, you know, cradle you in some way. And the fact that he didn't do that common sense says, my friends are like, he was trying to protect you. He was trying to keep you safe. But at the end of the day, all I hear is you weren't good enough. You were unwanted. And that, you know, now it's like a, a problem that's twofold. You know, his TBI brain injury led him to suicide has now led me down this path. It's like, it's a constant conversation. So it's just complex. It's really complex. Um, but I agree. I don't think that it is uh the cowardy cowardice way out. I, I don't think it's selfish. Um I do know I I say this, I'll be honest. I found out this morning a person I know took their life this morning before we talk. So my heart's a little heavy today. Um I think it just makes
2: makes me really sad that that so many of our, you know, fellow warriors are, are coming to this conclusion and feel so alone. Let's change that.
0: Well, I think another thing that, you know, has has really become another, you know, glaring issue is, this is obviously apl- applicable to men and women, but especially men. You know, Chad, Chad and I are roughly the same age. You know, we grew up, with men don't cry you were a man john wayne was a man john wayne wasn't a fucking man he was an actor you know he didn't ever serve and actually from what i understand he might be a bit of a piece of shit to be honest as a human mm-hmm. being um but you know so we have and i talk about this a lot the yin and yang is a man and a woman and what makes a man for example become a soldier a seal a police officer you know, firefighter is that compassionate side, that kind side, that, that, you know, gentle side. But then when we're in the flow state, when we're on the battleground, when we're on the fire ground, that's that hard side where you, you know, you push emotion down and you go do what you're paid to do. But what we've allowed to happen, I think, in, in, the, in the world of masculinity is that we're just a black circle, that there is no white, which is completely wrong. And mm-hmm. we have to process what we see. Of course, it's going to affect you if you watch a child killed. You know, when you assault a building or, as I said, you know, the multiple, multiple deaths that I was never, ever able to bring back. Never zero. I'm zero for, you know, whatever in, in my career as far as someone in cardiac arrest. Those, you know, if you don't process that, if you don't talk about that, if you don't give yourself the forgiveness and, and the ability to understand that, that's going to that's gonna leave a mark. You know, mm-hmm. you're a human being. That, I think, is a big part of the I don't want to talk about it element from men is we have this facade of masculinity, which is this stoic John Rambo running through a Viet Cong jungle, mowing down, you know, Vietnamese people and not even flinching. That's that's Hollywood. That's complete BS. And I always tell people, you want to see a real man, watch Band of Brothers, the real soldiers that speak at the beginning and the end and watch how torn up they are pretty much every single episode some of the most heroic soldiers of you know this last you know 100 years or so that's what a man is compassionate and kind and you know tough when they need to be and i think that i see a lot of our men specifically but you know obviously women as well but our men struggle with that like i can't talk about it you know i'm not going to share my emotions that's a weakness that's you know Whatever, and I think that is another thing that we need to talk about. This whole toxic mas- masculinity, true toxic masculinity is walking around like you think you're John Wayne. That's actual toxic masculinity. Real yeah. masculinity is walking softly but carrying a big stick.
1: Yeah, I I I like that analogy, that yin and yang, that that really resonates with me a lot. And I think you're absolutely right. I think unfortunately. <clears throat> That doesn't lend itself to a tier one operator, or or and even like you know firefighter. You know if they start talking about hey, you know we need you to come be Navy SEALs and and go through buds and do all that sort of stuff, but we also need you to talk about emotion that crushes their concept of what they need these like war fighters to be. And so I don't know how you rectify that other than, um. You know, I would love to think the military would change, but I see that as a really long uphill battle that's probably an elevation I'm never going to reach, right? I'm just never going to get there. It's maybe more to do with how could we talk to this and create create it among like the culture of people. I mean, regardless, Chad Wilkinson was a Navy SEAL, but Chad Wilkinson was Chad Wilkinson. He was his own human. And so we are all responsible for ourselves. We owe a duty to ourselves to to do those check-ins and be like, am I who I am supposed to be? Am I being like, quote, the best version of myself? Um, And hopefully you know, the, the goal could be at least at this level, we have these kind of conversations like you and I are having and bring light to the struggle that certain people have and the signs and symptoms so that not only the man can be his best advocate, but his partner or, or the woman that's in the military, this is, we don't discriminate. I'm not saying that, but you know, like let's make everyone recognize like you and your wife, for example, owe it to each other to like legitimately check in and make sure you're good to go. And let's all get off kind of the hamster wheel of life.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. I think the way that you get to the pseudo alpha male, you know, the like you said, you know, we need you to be just hard, just, just black on the, the yin-yang, is look at the sporting world. The way that your favorite, insert whatever athlete, gets to the flow state is they have high stress, they have high, high, high levels of training, and they have a calm mind. So as you become more, you know, as there's more turmoil in your mind, you're actually becoming a less effective operator. So if we could paint it that way, where your performance is going to improve, if we talk, if we offload trauma, if we get the post-traumatic growth, you know, if we if we take that, that those scars and turn them into, to, to strengths, but you have to process that you have to heal. I think that's how you maybe get to some of these, these communities, you know, you're not going to be the highest performer if you have a, you know, a typhoon going on in your mind.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that's great. Yeah.
0: All right. Well then for your journey, you know, I mean, you just lost the love of your life you the know, father of your children, um, What were some of the tools that you used to start dealing with that grief? And then walk me through the, you know, the the educational element where you started deciding to delve into these underlying factors that contribute to some of these, you know, losses that we're seeing.
1: Um, you know, the person, uh, Keebler Ross or whatever her name is, that wrote the five stages of grief, that's bullshit. I mean, it totally is bullshit. I, I believe um, there's no stages, there's no cycle, there's no beautiful circle or Venn diagram. It's really ugly and it's really fucking messy. And if anybody shoots rainbows to you after losing their spouse, they're lying. They just are. And, and I've witnessed it in, in girlfriends of mine, fellow widows, and in myself. We've all traveled this path. It's like a crazy highway, right? That has no rhyme or reason. And and there's no judgment, which is wonderful. At least I feel that way among each other. We've all chosen different things. You name it, I've done (laughs) It's kind of where it is. I, you know, hanging out with friends, not hanging out with friends, working out, not working out, sleeping, not sleeping. Um, And I'll, I'll say that it's still hard. It's still very, very hard, but The first two years, um, they were just bad. Um, They were just bad. I mean, I took a hammer to my bathroom door many times. And when my girlfriend insisted on replacing the bathroom door, I beat it up again. So, you know, um, I've worked with a therapist regularly since early on, and I still see her every week. And I literally would not be here without her. She's amazing. So I do think some form of, of talk therapy is beneficial. Even, even if you haven't suffered a significant loss, I think most people could benefit from that in their life. Personally. Um, I've journaled and written a lot and, you know, I've been open about this. I've done psychedelics and plant medicine. um, Probably provided me the most profound healing personally and yeah, I've just, I've done a little bit of everything. I think what led me down, I don't think it was necessarily, I was led down this path, but when you, you know, like I've said so many times, suicide just leaves you with so many questions. Like, I just need to understand what do I not understand? And and so for a long time, early on, I would scour. I would scour our laptop. I would look at every photo, every video. I found a voicemail. I replayed it. I looked at all of our email communication. Um, and then obviously I started, once I learned about interface, astral will scarring, I started reading about that. And then TBI, PTSD, blast. Anyway, I wouldn't sleep. I didn't, i I was like a vampire. Like I did not sleep and just in the middle of the night studying. And I think it's just that constant quest of wanting the answer. Like I wanted to know what's the answer until I finally realized there isn't an answer. And that was helpful to recognize. It's such a weird thing to know. I'm going to live the rest of my life with questions. I'll never get the answer to. And, um, once I could get to that spot, it was a little better. <laughs> and I think as far as me speaking out about Chad and, and sharing his, our story and, and being open, I don't think it was ever a real conscious decision. I think it's something that's just happened organically. And, and up to this point, that's kind of how I've lived my life. I mean, that's how I found CrossFit. It's how I opened a gym. It's how I came to work on seminar staff. Um, you know, even meeting Chad in gym class. My life has been kind of these series of of, of organic exchanges where your life spins into something else. And so that's how I'm here. Um, I'll be honest, it's been hard. And after some of these podcasts I've done, being being completely inundated with messages where people are so kind and so generous, but they also share a lot of their personal story, very personal things that I, I, I'm guarded with. And I, I, I don't take lightly and I, I, I feel very humbled. They would trust me with information, but now there's this duty to serve where I've put my story out there and somehow this is relatable or resonates with others. And they reach out to me. I can't not respond to them. I can't, you know, I had a friend say, Sarah, you can't answer. You can't respond to every single person. I looked at them. I said, absolutely. Yes, I can. Um, and, you know, part of that is probably the fact that in some ways I didn't respond to Chad. Right. And so if I if I didn't respond to him and I have the potential to to pay this forward and respond to someone or or leave an impact in their life, then I'm absolutely going to do that. I don't know how I got here. I'm just here.
0: (laughs) Well, I hear that from so many people. There's some that, you know, this was the first time that they'd really spoken on a podcast, some of the guests and over and over again they're inundated with with messages, you know, and and it really goes to show that behind the facade, behind the curtain, behind the, you know, selective Instagram posts are human beings, as you said, going through various struggles. And I think in your community and my community, there's even a higher acuity of that because they're not going, you know, to to the office and going home, and sleeping in their own bed every night. There are all these other compounding factors that are adding to the higher probability of them going through some mental health challenges.
1: Yeah, and in some ways, that's the positive. If there is one or a few of our social media platforms in a world where we're so isolated, in this particular example, it provides a platform for someone who doesn't have to stand directly in front of my face and say, I'm struggling or I've had these thoughts, but they can send it in a message, not knowing, you know, if I'm going to read it if I'm going to respond or whoever the person is, they reach out to, there's probably a little safety and anonymity there, but, but how, what a service you could do by responding to that person. And at the very least, at least they feel heard. At least they feel validated. And I believe as humans, we all need people. Humans need humans. It you say it in your book. I mean, it's in our DNA. I I believe that to my, core. That's why I've stuck with CrossFit for so long. I think more people return to a CrossFit gym less to do with the bumper plates on their barbell and more to do with the people they stand shoulder to shoulder with. So if we've created a platform now where people can send us messages through social media and feel as if maybe someone will hear me, then okay, let's start there.
0: Absolutely, well, I want to get to Chad a thousand times in a second. Just one more area because you brought it up, and it's again, especially the SEAL community. I've seen suddenly a really you know strong embracing of this type of of therapy. But you mentioned psychedelics. Um, one of uh, other SEAL Team Six, Jeff Nichols, talked very candidly about his experience. So I've had. A bunch of them now. Veterans seeking solutions, I think, is one of the organizations. But ibogaine, you know, DMT, psilocybin. So talk if you if you're okay with it. Talk to me about your experience because I've seen so many people benefiting from that type of therapy.
1: Um. Yeah i I I had done all the things. You name it. I tried it. You know, I went to Bali. I bought a pig. I bought a car. I sold my house. I bought a house. I traveled. I hung out with my kids. I mean, anything. Um, and I just, all of those things were really great. And they're definitely a piece to my puzzle, but I just still felt like there was something, something bigger I had to do. And so I did my due diligence and I did research and I, I did seek out psilocybin and MDMA. Um, and I had never done that before. Even in my youth, I didn't partake in any drugs like that or, or plant medicine or, or, or anything. Um, and it was pretty profound. Um, I, I didn't get healing or closure as it pertains to Chad. I saw him. He was there. He was with me. He never spoke. He was always smiling But what it what it really brought light to me, which is which if you talk to people in the plant medicine world, what they'll tell you is plants, plant medicine brings you what you need. And when they said that to me beforehand, I thought that's kind of hokey. But in my experience, what I really learned through this journey was all the people that I do have in my life that I am surrounded by a pretty incredible community of people and truthfully that community has only double triple you know compounded since Chad's loss. So you know there's the military community, there's the CrossFit community, there's my other friends in between and now my Go Ruck and Chad 1000x and and it allowed me to really understand there are, you can surround yourself with amazing people it might not be the love of your life but they can help hold you up when you can't stand. And um, it just impacted me. And a few months went by and I was still really struggling. Um, Again, you know, I, I've had to walk this path with teenagers. Our daughter was 17 and my son was 14 and I don't want to really talk a lot about them, but, but they're amazing and they have impressed me, but they've also struggled and it's, it's just been very hard for us. And, So, I did seek out further treatment, um, and I went out of country again, and I did Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT, which was, besides watching my daughter go through open-heart surgery when she was two months old, it's probably, and losing Chad, the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Hard. Um, But again… I don't think that I would be where I am today, talking to you, public speaking, pushing Chad 1000X forward, advocating for blast injury if I had not done psychedelics. And, and so I sit here and, and I realize that for a lot of people, there's a moral and ethical decision. And I completely, completely respect people's choice. I have watched veterans not active duty, clearly they can't go get treatment, but post-service who are in a really, really bad way, go get treatment. And I can sit here and say it saves their lives. So while the treatment might not be for everybody, to me, it's the one that has the best chance of working. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I've I've heard it from multiple people. I mean, Dan Cirillo and Nick Norris, and like I said, Jeff, and you know the list goes on and on and on. Even Johnny Walker, who was uh, originally from Iraq, and he became one of the SEAL team's interpreters, and they got him over here. He just went through it, you know. And so, you know, one of the things I talk about is the war on drugs and the ridiculous, you know, drug prohibition that we have. And one of the big arguments to to look at that again is that we have people that are fighting and dying for our country – and the people that do come home, they have to go overseas to get this treatment. So I hope that there's a push, you know, to get past, as you said, some of that, that ethical there. I don't think it's ethics at all. You know, cultures have been using these these uh, plant medicines for centuries, if not millennia. We just imposed oh. this ridiculous law about 90 years ago. Well, not even we, a racist dude and his his, you know, cronies after the alcohol prohibition was an epic failure.
1: Well, and I agree. I mean, I I agree with what you said. I don't necessarily think it's an ethical issue, but that's what people are going to default to. They're going to fall back on that. Like, well, you know, my beliefs here's here's what really was like, huh? When that when it was said to me this way. So if you go to your doctor and we know that the military really likes to medicate our veterans, that should be a whole separate podcast for another day. We want to just pop them full of pills. If you go to your doctor and they say you need to take this pill, what do they also say? They're going to say it's going to take, you know, two to three weeks to kick in. And oh, by the way, here's a whole list of side effects. And oh, by the way, you might get really dependent on them and it's going to be really hard to wean you off. Wow. You want me to take this? Yeah, it'll be great. Sounds terrible. (laughs) Plant medicine, they say, okay, it grows on the earth like our planet has produced this, which goes into a lot of our food system right we eat food that our world grows so here we've got this plant you can take it it's effective almost immediately and you won't become dependent on it why is this an argument i don't get it i don't get why that why there's any argument but
0: yeah well i think the more people that come on here you know and obviously other podcasts too and, and start educating everyone myself included and i didn't know about, you know, ibogaine and psilocybin and some of these things and their impact not only on PTSD, but on TBI. I believe yeah. psilocybin is the only, you know, product they found so far or plant that actually seems to heal TBIs, which is incredibly, you know, um, encouraging.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, yeah, there's no argument for it at all. It's complete bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, well you mentioned about, you know, some of the amazing communities that you found yourself in. You've got CrossFit. We've got gonna we'll talk about GoRuck in a moment. Um I was very, very fortunate to have Dave Castro on the show. I've been doing CrossFit since 06 as well. Um and uh two years ago I remember him posting this workout, you know, he'd lost a friend and you know, or, or a fellow SEAL. Um and it was on like a Saturday, I think. So I actually got a bunch of my members on the Sunday, we opened up the gym. Uh, My my little boy did it. My wife did it. I did it with a sixty pound vest because, as you said, you know the tactical people like to go above and beyond because we're idiots, (laughs) Um, and uh, we we knocked it out. But um, so talk to me about you know the 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 genesis of of Chad one thousand times, and then can lead me through Gorok and let's talk about twenty twenty one.
1: Yeah. So I um, gave a eulogy at Chad's memorial and in there, I spoke about him doing this workout to train, to climb Aconcagua, just trying to give really reference to the type of person he was and the, and the focus and the drive that he had. Obviously there was a bunch of CrossFit family members in the audience. And I think one whispered to another and said, that'd be a great workout. I I never foresaw that was never on my mind, obviously in those moments, how that would play out. But so I made reference and, um, and Dave did do it. He sent me a message maybe December sometime and said, "Hey, I'm at HQ. I'm with so, you know, he listed a group of our friends and said we're going to do the workout." And I thought, "Oh, that's cool." And so he did it and sent me a couple photos and I do know he was interviewed with Morning Chalk Up and they talked about it. And so I, you know, while he didn't invent the workout or come up with it, I do think probably his post made people go, "Wait, what? What is this? What are we doing?" And and then what we saw is people kind of took to the workout. And, you know, I would see every once in a while, someone, you know, picking a, picking a workout, they'd do this one. And obviously it's minimal equipment. So it's a thousand step ups with a 45 pound pack. <clears throat> and this is what he did to, to train for mountains. And he would do it in our garage and he would take a projector and he would project Aconcagua, the mountain on the back of our garage door, again, focused. So he knew he was doing these step ups because he was going to go climb that mountain. Um, and then fast forward to 2020, I guess. So 2019 goes by and my gym did it again right around the anniversary of his death. And, you know, here or there, people were doing the workout. But to 2020 in August, I get a call from Goruck. And they say, hey, we'd really like to do this workout and it'd be, you know, I think it would be good and, and we could get more people to do it and make it a thing. And I remember being on the phone and I I didn't know Go Ruck. I didn't know Jason. I mean, I knew what Go Ruck was, but I didn't know Jason or Emily McCarthy. And I went, what? No. And they were like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> Roger that. And uh yeah, my first instinct was no. And and truthfully, I think my first thought of no was. I'm, I am while I'm here talking about Chad and I've shared a lot about his life. I'm I'm very protective of him because I know how quiet he was. And if you would have googled Chad Wilkinson prior to October 2018, you would have never found a single thing out about him. He scrubbed himself on the internet. As far as the world knew, he didn't exist. It's how he liked to be. And I thought, man, his face was everywhere. I struggle with that a little bit, um, but. As the story goes, I took a van trip through the Pacific Northwest for 10 days all by myself. And I thought about a lot of things. And I thought about here it is almost the two-year mark. And I kind of had this feeling of like, come on, Sarah, like, get your head out of your ass. Like, you got to kind of like, you're a doer. And I hadn't really been doing that much. I was just kind of existing. And I laid on a picnic table in the middle of the Redwoods for hours. And... I just realized, you know, I think we could take this workout and we could do good with it. And if we can do good with it, then I'm okay with with showing his face and sharing his story. And so that's kind of what happened. And I called him back and um, and that's how it's rolled. I mean, it's, it's completely in my control. GORUCK says they work on behalf of me. They've been incredibly supportive. Uh, we do the workout. Chad died on the 29th of October, but I... I like that the workout is done on Veterans Day or, or bookmarking either weekend because, while well, Chad's story is, I've had people say, it's a good story. And then they'll say, oh, well, I mean, it's not a good story. I'm like, no, I understand what you're saying. Like, I understand the message. Yeah, that's that's his story. And this is his workout. And it's what he really did do. The bigger story, though, is for people to... Actively engage in Chad One Thousand X in their gym or with their neighbors or with a friend, and recognize how many of our current veterans have invisible wounds. How many of our current veterans have really paid a pretty big price for their service, even though they're still living, and and that's that's where I want the conversation to to always kind of come home to.
0: Yeah, and this, it's it's. I mean, it's so important, like you said, the community element, you know, the actual, you know, the reason that we're, I think, you know, the hero was a, a great because you're talking about that person as well, you know, that they're not forgotten. Um, but I heard one of my guests say that it was one of the near suicides and, and they, they had in a moment where they're like, I just spent X amount of time stopping the enemy from killing me and then I'm going to go and do it by my own hand. I think I think maybe, yeah. maybe one of the, the people, it was one of their family members that said that to them, I think the dad or something. But um, but that's it. Like you know, having this conversation. Of course, there's a fundraising element too. But bringing that community together and get people talking about suicide, because most of the hero awards are you know KIA ultimately. Whether it's you know yeah. the first responders or the military. So bringing people together, suffering together, scaling the workout so that you don't have an excuse not to do it. You you know. Just put a you know little aerobic step up there and, and step up four inches, but do it side by side with the whole bunch of people, you know, and get this conversation. Because as you touched on earlier, I hate the push-ups too. The twenty-two push-ups are you know kind of like the ice bucket challenge. I guess that did raise some money, but I don't see how dumping ice on your head is going to help cure ALS. You know, the same way as you know five Ks don't cure cancer either. You know, it's, right. it's, it's actually maybe we should look at the things that are giving us cancer in the first place. Um, but yeah, so it's it's so important. Um, we're hosting it in our gym on October 11th. That's going to be our our workout for the day. Um, I just ordered my shirt and patch. Um, so for everyone listening, tell me, you know, tell me fr- from from the the person now sitting on the couch, hoping this will be the first thing they ever do to get their journey back to to wellness through to the. The SEAL operator who's listening as well. You know, what are the, you know, how can people sign up? How can they find the information? And how can they they scale? How can they, you know, make sure that everyone's doing it side by side in some sort of community?
1: Yeah. So the so the workout, um, thousands step ups with a 45-pound pack. If you do it that way, we we call that expert. If for some people in the CrossFit world, you might think of it as RX, but this is not a CrossFit workout, this is a everyday human workout. Um, if you want to scale further, we refer to that as standard. So you might use a lighter weight, but perhaps still use that 20 inch box. And then you can go slick, which means no weight and even a lower box. And truthfully, you can even scale it further from there. So, I mean, I had videos last year of people just stepping up on the first stoop to their front porch. It it really has less to do with the way in which you complete the workout and the time that it takes you to do the workout. It really has more to do with the heart and sweat and energy you put in during those step-ups and, and really you know, who you can share the, the suffering with and, and, and where your mind goes during those step-ups. For some of our military guys doing it, you might think of your own struggle or a fellow buddy that struggled, a friend you've lost. For the family members of military, take some time to reflect on what you've given for your loved one's service, for the neighbor who's not affiliated with the military, spend that hour really reflecting on the freedoms that you enjoy because of our service members in uniform. Um, I can't express enough how important it is to bring people together and do this together. I've said before, but step-ups, it's not technical. We do it every single day, and we've already discussed you can scale it and not step up as high or not carry weight. This is not complex. It's not technical. Anybody can do it. Um, But the poetic beauty in it is how it relates to maybe a mental struggle, right? You walk and step up every day. Nobody gives you credit for that. Maybe you struggle in your mind every single day and nobody knows it or sees it and gives you credit for waking up in the morning. So, um, I don't know. There's just a symbolism there. You can go on chad1000x.com and register. Uh, Buy your t-shirt. Buy your patch. We'll be changing those each year so it'll become very clear to us when you jumped in on the chad1000x And we are hosting live events this year, which I'm pretty excited about. And so if you're in one of our larger cities, we'll be in San Diego, New York City, Virginia Beach, Virginia, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and Fort Pierce, Florida. We also, in addition to our live events, we've partnered with Sebastian Younger, who wrote the book Tribe. He was the filmmaker on Restrepo, and he does what's called a Vets Town Hall, where he initiated this concept. We're only encouraging it through our live events uh, with, with his approval, that we want to bring veterans together and allow a space for you to share your story. And standing up, upwards of maybe 10 minutes, which if you've ever public spoke, 10 minutes is a long time, but... You can share kind of what service means to you in, in, in a lot of the ways I've already discussed. So deployments, hardship on the family, losing a friend. And what's great about that is, again, it gives a little bit of a voice to veterans who might not feel heard, but it also opens up the eyes to some civilians that, that might just not be exposed to many military communities or, and are unaware. And uh, I think it's going to be a great year.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's amazing i had sebastian on i think he's been on three times now We got that right um but yeah i actually went to my um you know local um not va what, what they call them the, the veterans group anyway oh, i'm blanking now but um pitched it the veterans town hall a couple of years ago now um, pre-covid and they were like yeah we love it and i never heard from them again so i gotta i gotta uh-huh. got kind of follow up but it's such a great idea rather than just have a parade and everyone's waving flags and everyone goes home get up there and whether your experience was amazing whether it was horrendous just what an opportunity to tell people that never ever wore that uniform about what it was like not the fox news version not the cnn version you know version but the human beings in your community that serve and i think it's so important every single community should be doing it
1: yeah yeah, I go rock. I think a couple other organizations have have done it or done a version of it. I know years ago, Go Rock did a thing called War Stories and Free Beer. <laughs> I think that's I think that's a great name. Um, of course, maybe free beer might not be good for all of our guys sharing war stories, but uh, yeah. And so it's it's it'll be. This is our first year doing this with him and, and that's town hall. So I imagine there's a little bit of a growth curve that's going to need to happen, but we've incorporated those. Uh, it won't be happening in Fort Pierce. Just we're at the Navy seal museum and it's their stump muster reunion. There's just too many things happening, quite frankly, that weekend, but in our other cities, if you want to attend, um, definitely check it out. And we hope that you'll at least pop in for a live event. And, you know, even if you're listening to this and you, you're thinking, for instance, my mom, I love my mom, my mom, for medical reasons, will never be able to do these step ups. But I know for a fact, she would show up to a live event if there was one near her house to at least watch and support. And so there's no rule that says to attend a live event, you actually have to participate in the 1000 step ups. If you just want to go and show your support, I'm sure everybody there would appreciate it too. So, Chad1000x.com. You can register and find out those cities that we'll be in. Otherwise, if you've got nowhere to go, grab your neighbor and let them know. You don't know this yet, but we're about to do a thousand step ups. <laughs> There's a training plan too. There's a training plan on Chad. I was gonna
0: just say that. So I did it, and I remember my ass being so sore <laughs> a couple yeah. of days after. And I was, I like, I like jumping into it. I like doing, you know, mud runs or whatever because it tests. Especially CrossFit, it tests your training and see all right, Am I ready for this? Yeah. Um, obviously, there's a lot of people that maybe haven't climbed in the fire service. You sure as hell should be climbing. So our profession should be pretty well well prepared for this. Um, what? Yeah, you know, tell me about those prep plans. If the average person maybe isn't doing a lot of vertical ascension in their life, how can they get ready?
1: Yeah. So the training plan is on Chad 1,000 X. You can download it, print it. We've had gyms like laminate it post it in their gym. All that's great. Awesome. We encourage it. And really it's just done as more or less a cash out. So if you're going through your typical workout, whether it's CrossFit or Orange Theory or your traditional gym of bodybuilding and just doing it as a cash out, and it shouldn't take tons of time. But the goal is we're just trying to build up a little bit of endurance and stamina to do those step ups. You know, in addition to doing all the step ups, I hope people will recognize this this workout doesn't have to be done alone, meaning one person completing all thousand. For many people, a a better option, a a safer option, because while it's not technical, you and I both know volume in itself can be pretty problematic. Share it with a friend. And so, if you and I were doing it, you'd step up, you'd step down. I'd step up, I'd step down. Um, that's a great way you could just split the work and and not do quite as many reps.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm very excited. Like I said, we'll be hosting it at CrossFit Iron Legion downtown Ocala. Everyone that's listening, um, I'll probably be there at 8 a.m. So you're gonna have to get your ass up early if you're gonna work out with me. Um, yeah. But yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get everyone fired up. I'm gonna use this platform to to get as many people. Um, you know, participate in as possible. Now, the fundraising element, where, where are you sending the money?
1: So the money is split between the Navy SEAL Foundation and the Step Up Project, which is my, my own entity um, I've started. Last year, we partnered. All funds went to the Navy SEAL Foundation. They've earmarked those monies to go to programs for veterans for brain health uh, the fact that the money is being split, ultimately, I'd like to grow my side in that, as we've discussed, my husband was a Navy SEAL that took his life. This, this suicide does not discriminate. Uh, and this is not just a Navy SEAL problem. So I want to see money going to other organizations that provide actionable programs for veterans' mental health. And that could span, right? That could Army, Marine, Coast Guard. This workout spanned the globe last year. If if we could potentially grow this the way I would like to grow it, I would like to be able to take a step up and then incorporate that in other organizations in other countries that service their military. Um, it's It's not just our United States troops that are exposed to war. It's everyone, so let's help everyone
0: absolutely and where can people find the step up project online
1: uh you can find us on instagram at the step up project that's going to be the best way to find us and follow us for now
0: beautiful well sarah i want to transition to some closing questions i know we've been talking for well over two hours now so i want to let you go um the first one i'd love to ask is there a book that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated
1: there was a few I read there. Megan Devine is a widow. She lost her husband tragically. He he, or it was her fiance, I believe. And he drowned. He drowned in front of her. And um, she's gone on to more or less become almost like an expert in, in loss. And she wrote a book called It's OK, You're Not OK. I found that to be pretty, pretty great um, at the risk of maybe sounding. I don't know. I don't know what the word is, but. All of Brene Brown stuff is I I've I got a lot of value out of that too. And um, there's another woman. Her name is Nora McInerney. She also has a podcast. She's written multiple books. She also is a widow. She lost her husband to cancer, and uh, I appreciate her kind of real, like, straightforward shot at. grief and loss and just how ugly it is. And it's not all it's it's not all the platitudes that people say. Let's let's just erase that from humanity. Don't say he's in a better place. At least you had that much time. Uh, You know, you're so much stronger because of this. Just let's just stop. Just stop all that. So those three people, those books and resources are what I like.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think I've heard it a lot. You know, it's God's plan. I don't think that's oh. very consoling to someone that just lost someone.
1: You know what it's I like... want people to say? And I've had a few people say this. They say, this happened. I I don't even know what to say. I, I just know this sucks. And I appreciated that so much. Like, just be real. There's also a show, which it is a show, but whoever wrote the show is very... In tune to grief. So I can only imagine that that they've lived it is it's called The Afterlife. Have you seen this?
0: Um I you know um, I haven't seen it, but I have heard of it. I remember seeing it, you know, advertised. Ricky
1: Gervais, it. is that his name? Ricky Gervais? Yes. Um I'm telling you, if you have someone who has lost a spouse and you can't imagine what that is like, go watch the show because some of the things that he said, I mean, I laughed and cried. He said that I was like, oh, my gosh, I've said that. I've done that. It's it's pretty spot on. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. Well, that answers my second question. That's a great recommendation, so thank you. Um, the next one, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: Mm, um, I probably have a couple, but... Uh, there's a doctor, her name is E.B. Chernak. She's, um, is this for you or is this going over the whole podcast?
0: On the whole podcast.
1: So, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, she, I don't know if I should blast her or not, but, uh, I have kind of befriended her and, you know, there, there are this whole study of TBI and blast injury is kind of new, but it's also kind of not new, but in some ways it's a little bit in, from my perspective, a little bit of a stalemate of how much they've really been pushing it forward. She's been studying blast injuries in Kosovo soldiers since the early nineties. Oh, wow. And so when I met her, I thought, why did I never know about this? I didn't know about blast injury till my husband was gone. And, um, I'm working on, sometimes I don't like to share everything. So you might have to like cut this out, but, um, I'm working on doing almost like a round table webinar discussion with her and opening it up to a platform of people. I mean, I've gotten a guy who was a hockey player and he messaged me and said, I've had this many concussions. Could I call you? I want to talk to you. I had a wife of a bull rider that's reached out to me because of their, his concussions, et cetera. And so there is so much potential to create Again, a platform for someone like her. I mean, I can only speak as someone who loved someone and lost them, and what I saw. She can speak to it from a science and research perspective, and and I think both sides of the coin are valuable. Um, I think she's pretty interesting. She's from like Serbia, though, so she has a really thick accent. Um, I, I think she's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe bring some of the military on and ask why they've spent forty-five million on veterans' mental health, but nothing's really changed.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I get an you know, honest answer if I ask the people I mean, that are behind it. <laughs> it's
1: like, um, So yeah. And you know, if you're open obviously to like the psychedelic space, you know, perhaps creating a creating a conversation around that um, with some other people that that have also experienced it. Maybe they were military, but also some of our our leaders in, in the plant space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to get some of the guys from MAPS too. I had one, Dr. Ben Sessa, who he leads MDMA-led therapy in, in Bristol, in England. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely a topic that I'm visiting over and over again. One thing I, do, I didn't really kind of get you to expand on, I know we're on closing questions, but just just educate us on what you've learned about the effect of TBI and the expression mentally and physically of our, our military or anyone else who gets, you know, concussed multiple times.
2: Oh,
1: you know, I got to think about this. It's very clear when someone has a physical injury you see them. And in our military, we, we see people with a limp. We see people with who've lost limbs and they have prosthetics and it's just, it's very clear. Something was given up. You know, they, they sacrificed something for, for their service in this instance, but military or not many people, like I mentioned the bull rider and the hockey player and and Chad did soccer and um, you know, my friend, Sydney, your husband, Bill took his life. He was a D one football player. So clearly, you know, there's a history of blows to the head. Our brain sits inside our skull and it's meant to move around. That's what the skull is for. It's there to protect you, but it's not meant to just be banged around essentially like a ping pong ball time and time and time again. And so, Common sense would tell you if I'm constantly either being hit in the head physically or exposing myself to this blast, which like it's like this Think of like a seismic wave, um, almost like a wave pool at a water park. You know, the big wave happens, but it eventually hits the coastline. It's just a little bit of a smaller wave. That same thing happens to your brain and, and basically shakes through the whole entire body. You can't deny that that doesn't affect our entire system. What's scary is that it happens, but there's no, at least in the beginning, there's no physical marker for it. You look at someone and they look they look fine. Like you don't, you're not missing a limb. You don't have a limp. You don't, you know, you have your vision, you have your hearing. And I think the scariest part is, and they, they're always referred to as these invisible wounds is, it's invisible until it's almost not. And when it's no longer invisible because the person does have sleep deprivation, does have headaches ringing in the ears, they lose their balance. They're agitated. They're forgetful. You know, the list goes on and on. It's almost, I don't want to say it's to the point of no return because we don't really know that yet, but it's to a point that is seriously, seriously problematic and, I guess trying to get people to understand that, uh, when, and and again, this is my, my thoughts, I'm not a scientist, but if you're with someone who's exhibiting these symptoms, it isn't like they just got hit in the head yesterday. And then this, this is the aftermath of it. It's been like a brewing storm. It's just been brewing in there and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't know if that answers your question, but...
0: No, no, it does. And I think it's just important to hear the TBI perspective as well, because, you know, I talk a lot about sleep deprivation and, you know, Kirk talks about, you know, you take TBI, which is de- demyelination of the nervous, you know, the, the sheath of the nerve, and then you take sleep deprivation, which is also demyelination of the nerve. And so, you know, you've got this compounding element. So you might have, you know, an MMA fighter, or a soldier, whoever it is, who maybe hasn't seen bad stuff hasn't had to do anything horrendous and they're still going through this you know and their partner is like what the hell is wrong with you know with my husband and my wife and you know if we're not thinking also about the tbi element a lot of us are missing it. and you saw you know it was a junior sow i think the football mm-hmm. player and then yeah. shooting himself in the chest just so that people could study his brain aaron hernandez story another example um you know these are Not only, and then you got TBI, you've also got ALS. I had a a firefighter on who's got that. And there's a, you know, head injury element to that too. So yeah, these are, these are very, very important things for us to talk about, not only with brain health, but when we're looking at mental ill health, anxiety, depression, suicide, that this is a compounding element. And if you are the breacher, if you are a football player or, you know, a, a fighter or whatever it is, this is a very real, You know, disease process that we have to be monitoring as well. But as I heard, I think you mentioned in one of the other interviews, sadly, it's only post mortem that you're able to really see the damage.
1: Yeah. The body is interesting, right? Have you ever broken a bone?
0: Um, Funny enough, no. And I'm 47, but I've bruised a bone, which was absolutely a a nightmare.
1: I've broken bones. And years ago, we had a conversation with Chad and the kids and everyone said they'd never broken a bone except for me. And within like two weeks, every one of us had broken a bone. Everybody was in a cat. <laughs> for instance, if you break your hand, it's very aware of what you no longer have access to because you use your hands for everything. Right. Like opening the doorknob, the jar, what we don't take into account is the parts of our body that work for us every single day, but we don't have to put a lot of energy into it. Or, have you ever tweaked your back or your neck?
0: Oh yeah, I had a terrible you heard in the book. My back injury—it was horrendous. Wait.
1: And you don't—you don't sit around each day going, "I'm glad my back was able to sit me down. I'm glad my back was able to stand me up." And so the same thing with the brain—you just take for granted this like amazing brain and and the way it serves us. And, and to your point, if you don't get enough sleep. Just like our computer that I'm on, eventually your computer starts running slow. And what do you got to do? You got to turn it down. You got to shut it off and like reboot the whole thing. I mean, that's what sleep does for all of us every single day. Operator, not firefighter or not. You got to technically reboot the system. And then when I think about TBIs in the simplest way, and some scientists might not like this, but I just need you to picture it's a bruise on your brain. If you get a bruise on your arm, well, it turns green and then it turns purple and then it turns yellow and then eventually it goes away. But the bruise on your brain, uh, I mean, that may never go away. And, And really what helps our body heal is blood flow. That's what we know. And so for Chad, going back to that, he climbed Aconcagua at 23,000 feet in January of 2018, and he took his life in October. Now, I don't have any science to back it up, but I do believe his lack of oxygen at that elevation sped up his deterioration. Yeah. And so just, I get so excited and like fired up about it. Just, yeah. I mean, I brain injury is a real thing and it is seriously problematic just because you can't physically see the wound doesn't mean that it's not a big scary beast because it is
0: yeah And well, i think a good reminder for me for all of us in the tactical profession is look at who you were when you stood on the drill ground the grinder you know whatever it was that you physically stood on when you started your journey into the tactical profession and then look at yourself now 10 20 whatever years you're in you are one of the most elite athletes mentally and physically in your community. That's why you threw on the uniform. That's why you pass the selection process. So, if you find yourself now a shadow of your former self, that you need to do a full assessment physically, mentally, because you should be, you know, like some of these athletes that we see that are still in great shape, even though they've retired, they still look amazing. Our, yeah. our first responders are military, you know, that, that see a lot of combat. Don't still look amazing. A lot of them look horrendous. Ugh. So we have to we have to reverse engineer all of our injuries and try and rehab the damage as much as we can.
1: That, that's that's a good point. I like the way you put that. Like if you look at yourself 10 years later and don't recognize yourself, I recently had to pull together a bunch of photos um of Chad for a project I was working on and you know for a long time, I'd scroll through those photos and I would just be sad and and um now I look at them, I guess from a different lens, and I started to recognize as I'm going back through the history of my photos that in about two thousand and sixteen is when he stopped smiling. I didn't notice it then, but I look back at all of our photos, and there's just a diff he had a different face, like he didn't really smile, and he kind of had this face where he was almost like looking straight through you like he was just not there um so yeah i I like the way you said that if if you don't recognize yourself yeah it's true
0: yeah well i just had a a kind of brief glimpse of that myself but again at a lesser level but i just went home we start. we talked about it before i started recording i just posted a very transparent um video about you know some depths that i found myself in and my mom said you know are you okay you've lost your spark and it's mm. the same thing. And I had a friend of mine, Chad, his name is Chad as well, was on. Um, he had one of the guys that had a lot of childhood trauma and dealt with it with alcohol for years. And we did a CrossFit workout together. They, you know, they, they call him, um, Diesel, I think, but he's just like, I, I wrote about him, a, a pseudonym version of him in one of the chapters. Um, and I think I wrote about this very thing on this picture. I think one of us had posted about this workout. Someone commented, that dude looks like he's seen some shit. And mm. that, that was the same thing. Now he runs this amazing thing called um, Recovery Rx where he leads a CrossFit group of, mm. you know, recovering addicts um, amongst other people and is in the best shape of his life. So you can heal from that. But yeah, you know, our spouses, like you were saying, um, are the most important... You know perspectives, lenses that we have our, our wives, our husbands, our children, you know, and one of the thing most eye opening things that I've heard someone say, and I've done it since is ask your husband, your wife, ask your children, do you think I've changed well, you used to be so much more fun now you seem angry, and you know, these are very, very important things because if I ask my fellow firefighter that I'm on that rig with twenty four hours at a time, mm-hmm. we're as fucking tired and, and pissed off and just worn in you know worn into the ground as each other so we both seem fine to each other but to our families completely different perspective
1: yeah yeah I agree I mean just communicate I I know it sounds. I'm not saying that's a solution but like just communicate everybody communicate and all platforms ask whether I've changed but also you know I want to change this this stigma around suicide people don't like to say that word I'll tell you what, I live with it because my person did die by suicide. So it doesn't, it doesn't affect me, not saying it doesn't affect me, but I have to carry it every day. Let's say the word suicide. And if you have someone who is struggling, people say, well, I don't want to ask them when really even suggested by all the professionals, that's what you do do. You do ask them if, if they're having those thoughts and yeah, let's just keep the conversation going. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Well, back to the, the last closing question before we make sure everyone knows again where to find everything online. What do you do to decompress?
1: I ride my skateboard.
0: <laughs> You're the second person that's told me that in about three weeks. And it
1: was uh, yeah.
0: another tactical female as well.
1: I I, I mean, I do. I, I do a few things. I really like to travel alone. <laughs> um, I hang out with my dogs, you know, a lot of, most of it's done by myself just cause that's, I'm, I am actually more of an introvert and I get fueled by being by myself is like how I have energy to, to come forward and do things. But riding my skateboard hands down has probably been the best thing for me to do. Yeah. So if you're in Virginia Beach and you see me ride my skateboard, I'm in a therapy session. Yeah, leave me alone. So yeah.
0: <laughs> well, just just to touch on the introvert thing, I had a guy, Chad, the the, the one that I was just talking about, when on, on the closing question with the book, he said there's a book called The Introvert's Edge. So I was like, Oh, that sounds interesting. Put it on the you know on the web page. And the author actually contacted me. So oh, yeah? we, we did a conversation as well, and it was so enlightening because his definition of an introvert is what you said. It's where you get your energy from. You can mm-hmm. absolutely go and be in you know in a conference or whatever or a club or a bar. But when it's time to level up, you go to your person, to your dog, be by yourself, whatever. The opposite, you know, the extroverts, usually the one that gains energy from a large room. So for Chad, he would look at a bunch of boisterous firefighters and think, well, I'm not fitting in what's wrong with me you know they're all having a good time and that was actually a mental health you know element for him and once you understand the personality type you go oh it's all right i'm gonna hang with the lads for a while and then i'm gonna go in my my bunk room i'm gonna go around the back and and just chill and i i was i had a aha moment i'm an introvert absolutely i love these intimate conversations i'm fine going out for a bit but i'm the person where you turn around and like where the hell did james go I, i'm just going home <laughs> so yeah. i can relate completely
1: Yeah. We, uh, we call that ninja dust when you're somewhere and you just don't want to be there anymore and you (laughs) disappear. Um, yeah, I think it took me a while to figure that out because I, I always thought I was an extrovert, um, being a military kid moving and I can talk to people and do all that. But then years ago I heard it defined that way and I thought, Oh, that makes sense. And I think over the years I've probably changed a little too, but, um, I was with a girlfriend last weekend and she's an extrovert and she's like, it's hard. Cause I text and I'm like, Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And I, yeah, you have to recognize and be okay with, with I don't want to call it a boundary, but like what, you know, I'm comfortable knowing I'm going to go to this party and hang out and then I'm just going to leave when I'm done. And, and, and I'll be better for it. Trust me.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, just one more time then. So where online can people find uh Chad 1000 X and anywhere else they can kind of reach out to you?
1: Yeah, you can go to the website www.chad1000x.com and it'll have how to register. You can do a general donation if you don't want a t-shirt or a patch and you can check out live events. There's a tab at the top. Um, You can follow me on Instagram, Sarah Wilkinson seven. You can follow the step up project on Instagram as well. Um, If you do Chad or any training and you want to post about it, we would love it. We hope that you'll tag us, tag me, Sarah, tag the step up project, tag GORUCK. You can tag the Navy SEAL Foundation as well. Um, We encourage, we encourage you to share your progress as we get close to the date. And when you do it, let's post about it.
0: Um, yeah <laughs> beautiful well Sarah I want to say thank you and I, I preface this with anyone that's really told a very courageous you know story I understand the toll that it takes you know when when you relive those moments but I've seen as you've touched on before the impact that these stories have so I want to thank you for for going there and being so selfless and and telling Chad's story and and educating us on all these elements and um you know thank you for for bringing everyone together with chad thousand x i truly appreciate you being so generous with your time today
1: i appreciate it thank you this is a great conversation and um you know we just we want to do good by this we want to use chad's story and other people's stories in the future to 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 change the narrative and change the number uh, around veterans mental health and, and veteran suicide so i i think we can do that